Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right. Hello, hello, everyone. Important episode here. Today we're going to go deep on cancer. In these deep dive episodes, as always, we're going through a book. In this case, it's a very big book. Over a thousand pages here. And what it is is 131 transcripts from a documentary series, The Truth About Cancer. And this particular series is called A Global Quest. Big series here. The Truth About Cancer had and still has a big impact in getting the word out about alternative options if somebody has cancer. And I like this book. I saved a lot of points. This is going to be a longer episode. There is some repetition because since there's 131 different interviews here, different people, they all have to give a pretty concise overview and there's many overlapping ideas. Like, of course, many people talk about genetically modified food and pesticides and other toxins and all this stuff. So I didn't save a lot of that, but I'm sure there will be some repetition here as well. Which is good because it means there is not really 131 different ideas in this book. But there's 131 people who more or less agree on the fundamentals of how this disease process starts and how it gets worse and the outcomes of conventional treatments like chemotherapy and radiation. They basically agree on all of that stuff and they have some more nuanced things to say within that. And there's many, many different anti-cancer compounds, so many of them talk about their own specific favorites. But there's a lot of overlap is what I'm saying and that's a good thing. Because that means we're not lost in space out there, all going in different directions. And many of these interviews are with regular medical doctors, and they agree with this stuff. I read a lot of books on health. Most of them are written by medical doctors. Probably just because there are so many more medical doctors. Regular doctors, this is what you would think of as your doctor, you wouldn't even question it. Well, that's a medical doctor. MD. There's so many more of them than there are all of the other things homeopaths and acupuncturists and nutritionists and naturopaths 
So just by default, most of the books about health out there are written by medical doctors. So I read a lot of them, and for the most part, they do agree with us about the same foods that we're calling out being a problem, about nutrient deficiencies being a problem, about drugs themselves being a problem, and the way the medical establishment is run, and the insurance and all this. They agree about these problems. Just saying, it's good that there is a lot of agreement here when it comes to cancer. So just because you hear hundreds of different compounds that are touted to be anti-cancer, it doesn't mean that any of them are incorrect. Just like there's many compounds out there that can kill bacteria and fungus and stuff. You know, we call them antimicrobials. You don't need just one specific special one that will do the job all the time. There's a whole bunch of different antimicrobials, just like there's a whole bunch of different antioxidants, and so-called anti-cancer substances. So in these deep dive episodes, I'm not really attempting to summarize the book for you. And in this case, there's 131 different short stories, basically. No way I can summarize all of these opinions and everything. We're just going through the points that I saved when I read the book. I marked the pages for whatever reason, for my own use, or because I wanted to share it here, or because I need to look into it further, or I disagree with it. All kinds of reasons I could save something. And we're just going through each point. But I do feel like I should give you some kind of a summary on my thoughts about cancer here before we jump in. And I do have a more detailed thesis in my book, Fake Diseases. And you can find that book and all of my books on my website, notusbooks.org. And there's free versions of all of my books, including a video version on YouTube where you can see the words and I read them to you, and audiobook versions. And in this case, Fake Diseases is here on podcast. And there's a cancer chapter, but you can find all of this on my website, notusbooks.org, and much more. Hundreds of book reviews, most of them are about health, and there's an archive of the podcast on the website, notusbooks.org. And actually, on the archive versions there, you can download them for free, and there's a special treat at the very end on the archive version. So in Fake Diseases, I do have a summary there, but the preceding chapters lay out things like digestion and just general nutrient deficiencies, blood sugar problems. And to me, that's what cancer is. It's really, in most cases, all of the things that could go wrong, going wrong. It's not one leg of the table that's missing. It's three or four legs of the table that are missing. And I realize almost everybody in the Western world is raised just like me. I was raised on breakfast cereal and pizza and other junk foods. I had severe nutrient deficiencies evidenced by my birth defects when I was born hips dislocated, chronic problems all throughout my babyhood and childhood and all the way until I was 26 years old and I finally reversed my bone and joint problems because along with the hips being dislocated, I also had what I would now call stiff man syndrome, but what my doctor called childhood arthritis mixed in with symptoms of Tourette's because cramps and twitches and spasms and tics all that stuff is the same nutrients that you need for your skeleton. Your musculoskeletal system needs basically all the same nutrients. So I was born with deficiencies, and I'm pretty sure everybody that's born in the Western world is born with some kind of a deficiency, unless the mother is heavily supplementing properly and avoiding all the bad foods and the other toxic stuff in this environment. Now, I don't make such a big deal about household toxins and you know formaldehyde in your furniture and... Stuff that a lot of people do focus on, they, they say that we live in this toxic world and that's why even a baby can get something like cancer because 
the mother, and this has been tested, it's been shown in breast milk and placenta and blood samples from mothers and babies that mothers are accumulating toxins. So are fathers. Everybody's accumulating toxins in this modern world. And that is being passed on to the baby. So a lot of these people will be blaming these toxins for the bulk of the problem of modern disease. Now, I include it, but as a more minor factor. To me, the hugest factors are nutrient deficiencies across the board, really, but especially in the, the key antioxidant nutrients, the key so-called anti-cancer nutrients, talking about selenium and vitamin A, vitamin C, zinc even. I would definitely throw calcium in because calcium is the primary alkalizing nutrient. You hear a lot of people talking about, oh, cancer can't live in an alkaline environment. Well, your body's supposed to have a slightly alkaline environment if it has enough minerals to do so. And not just minerals, but especially calcium and all the water-soluble nutrients, actually. B vitamins, vitamin C, calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium, chloride, and more. Your body needs all of these things to be hydrated. You can't be hydrated just with water alone. You need water and water-soluble nutrients, or you will show signs of dehydration, including acidity. So babies do get cancer, but it's, it's not the bulk of the cancer patients. Most cancer patients are older, and they've been living for decades in this toxic environment, this nutrient-deficient environment. No matter what you buy from the grocery store, you're not going to be able to get enough of the essential nutrients, especially the minerals. This is any diet. This is health-conscious people as well, not just you know, cheeseburger-eating, beer-drinking civilians. This is people who jog, and, you know, 10 years ago they tried the vegan diet, and maybe before that they tried the Atkins diet, and now maybe they're on some paleo or carnivore or something. These are people who are trying to do well, and yet they still have massive deficiencies because nobody can get enough nutrients in our food supply. And you could get cancer just from nutrient deficiencies alone, but I do believe that you need some other provocation. For example, I did an episode here with uh, Dr. Wallach, who's a pathologist who's done thousands, many tens of thousands of autopsies, including over 454 species of animals and thousands of humans for comparison. So he knows what disease looks like in organs and the cause of many cancers, especially in animals. And what he said in that episode was that nutrient deficiencies are a factor, you know, basically just like I said here. And they can cause cancer on their own, but usually you need some kind of a provoker, some kind of an antagonist. For example, liver cancer. It's well established that the aflatoxin, which is produced by a mold called aspergillus, I believe it's aspergillus niger, it's a bread mold that also grows on peanuts and could grow on any nuts, really, if they're stored improperly. It can grow on all, a whole bunch of foods. But this aflatoxin is well established to cause liver cancer in animals especially bears and dogs. So in the animal feed industry, they know they have to account for this mold problem and ensure that their pellets and their powders, you know, don't get moldy. And there's all kinds of different poisons and stuff out there, but that liver cancer example is good. There's just, this is one thing that's well established to be such an antagonist that it actually causes this specific type of cancer in animals and in humans, presumably as well, even though we don't have the double-blind studies to back it up. We can confidently say that exposure to this mold will cause liver cancer in any animal that has a liver. And it might be that if there's enough nutrients there, especially selenium, that the cancer won't develop. But nonetheless, you'll see high rates of cancer associated with certain antagonists. This is why you can look at 
rates of cancer in different industries. And of course, you can look at countries as well. Countries do things differently. They have different diets, they have different nutrient intakes, they have different soil nutrient contents, different habits, etc. So the cancer rate's different. But it's always been interesting to me that you can actually see an occupational difference where people are exposed to different things. These could be chemicals in the textile industry. This could be sawdust in the logging industry. Could be EMF, radiation. I'm looking here at the Canadian Cancer Society website, cancer.ca, and they blame a few things here, such as solar radiation, workers being exposed to solar radiation causing skin cancer. Now, I don't agree with that, but just saying they're identifying some occupational hazards here, asbestos Estimating 1,900 lung cancer cases, 430 mesothelioma cases, 45 laryngeal cancer cases, and 15 ovarian cancer cases per year due to asbestos. Might also argue with that, but diesel engine exhaust here. Nearly 900,000 workers in Canada are exposed to diesel engine exhaust. And they're saying it accounts for 560 lung cancer cases and it may account for 200 bladder cancer cases. And like I said, I would disagree with this because I would bet that those lung cancer cases and bladder cancer, they, they probably have other deficiencies, other diet habits, maybe a digestion problem. Maybe they're on a stomach acid-lowering drug for their digestion problem or some other drug. Or you know, There's other factors here in cancer is one of the points I'm trying to get across here. There could be a single antagonist that is strong enough to cause the cancer on its own. But even in the case of bears and humans that consume aspergillus mold, Nowhere near 100% of those eaters are actually going to get liver cancer, especially not immediately. Now, it may burden the liver, stress the liver, cause the liver to use up more nutrients or divert its resources to dealing with this poison. And over time, that may develop into what we call cancer. But to my knowledge, there's not that many things that will cause like instant cancer. If the poison was that strong, it would, it would kind of kill you instantly. Cancer usually takes time to develop, depending on the state of the nutrients, the state of the digestion, the state of the stress, how much sleep they're getting, the amount of the toxin, the amount of things consumed that get rid of toxins in the body, such as nutrients and various herbs and all this stuff. Lots of factors. They're also blaming silica here, crystalline silica. They're blaming almost 570 lung cancer cases due to the silica. And interestingly... Here on the website for the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, top of their list for professions at a higher risk of exposure and cancer include office jobs. Right at the top, office jobs. They're blaming sitting, whether at a desk or in front of a screen or behind a wheel, can increase one's cancer risk. They say uh, sitting is the new smoking. I would agree. Studies have found that those who sat for more than eight hours a day with no physical activity had a risk of dying similar to the risk posed by obesity and smoking. Right, sitting's the new smoking. Over time, sitting regularly for long periods of time can cause other adverse effects such as increased blood pressure, high blood sugar, high cholesterol levels. All those things go together. That's the metabolic syndrome, basically. And excess body fat around the waist. Next, they blame shift work which I would definitely agree with. Shift work is one of the worst things that you could do for your health because you do run on a circadian rhythm. You cannot reset it. It is better to be on night shift permanently so you do get kind of used to it. Your hormones will kind of adjust, but you are supposed to wake up with the sun. The sun is supposed to activate your pituitary gland, which you know causes you to 
create hormones that wake you up, basically give you energy. And you're supposed to produce melatonin at night. And we disturb that with too much sugar, by the way. We disturb that by looking at screens, television, phones. Late at night, it's blue light. You should be using a blue light blocker. I have them on my devices, and I wear the glasses with the blue blockers in them, supposedly. But still, you can still mess up your melatonin output. And melatonin is a powerful antioxidant as well, by the way. But your body's not producing it properly if your circadian rhythm is off. If you're not going to sleep shortly after the sun goes down and waking up before or with the sun, your circadian rhythm will be off, period. So they're blaming cancer on this, and I would 100% agree. Very, very difficult to help people get healthy when they work shift work. And rotating shifts are the worst. Night shift is the second worst. And we can talk about that on a future podcast. I don't mean to go so long here on the uh, initial explanation. Just have to point out that there's multiple factors to your overall health. And if any one of these is incredibly off, like you're literally not sleeping at all, you're going to have massive, massive problems that you will feel quickly. If you're exposed to a toxin in, in very high amounts, you could absolutely develop a disease or die or so, you get some emergency event, a heart attack or something like that, anaphylactic shock. All these things could absolutely happen if any of these things are so bad. But in general, most people are just constantly exposed to subpar nutrition, just various nutrient deficiencies, subtoxins, like you're not getting death level of poison when you're eating a sandwich at a fast food restaurant, but you are getting a low-grade dose of chemicals all the time. Many people live with chronic low-grade stress, you know, stressful lifestyles, everything's getting expensive, etc. Chronic low-grade stress, messing with your hormones, messing with your nutrients, messing with your ability to digest foods, and ultimately messing with your lifespan and risk that you are going to get a serious disease state develop like cancer. So there's actually a lot you could say about shift work, and they say some more here. I'm just going to continue on. Agriculture and forestry careers, which exposes you to chemicals and engine exhaust and other stuff. Rubber manufacturing jobs. I would just say a lot of manufacturing jobs. I used to work in a uh, mechanic shop for a while for cars, and they use brake cleaner to clean almost anything. It's crazy. It's not just brakes. We're going through cans and cans of brake cleaner. And for half the year, at least, the doors are closed because it's cold. So we're just in there with tons of chemicals, not just brake cleaner, a whole bunch of stuff. But it was no wonder to me that most of the mechanics that I knew and still most of them that I've ever met have very clear and obvious health problems, chronic pain being one of them, sciatica, back problems. You know, you get a lot of mechanics that are on Percocets and other hardcore painkillers. Basically, permanently, they're on those because of chronic pain. And I would definitely bet that the exposure to chemicals is part of that. Also, 30-minute lunch breaks, which I think should be illegal. It's just not enough time to properly digest food. And unless you're prepping food at home or your wife's bringing it to you or something, which some guys did, bring a home lunch. Unless you're doing that, you have no chance of getting healthy food, basically. So you're eating fast food by default. And where we were, we would have a food truck or two or three food trucks come by during the day. They'd come by to all the different shops and factories in the industrial area there. And it's 100% junk food, of course. Lots of people would eat off the food truck every day. And that's going to really, really add up in your body. Okay, they've got construction and mining work, especially for asbestos, lots of other things. I live in a mining town. One of the big risks is just flat out dying. Very dangerous job. 
anyways, okay, multiple factors, and it's interesting rabbit hole to go through to look at different occupations and their rates of certain cancers. So it's telling you there's certain antagonists that can cause certain cancers. Nutrient deficiencies are always going to be involved. Even if you didn't have a nutrient deficiency to start with, the process of cancer itself, the process of healing will, by default, require more nutrients. It takes more nutrients to heal than it does to maintain. It takes more to build than it does to maintain. So a growing child, a woman who's pregnant, require more nutrients than the same woman on a regular day, not pregnant. When the child is grown, all it needs to do is maintain its tissues. It doesn't need as much nutrients. So finally, before we actually jump into the book here, long introduction, but if you would like our advice, me and my team, on what to do about your health, we do this for free. We give free consultations. You can contact us. This is in the description of the podcast. It's on our supplement website, wallexwarriors.ca. And on the contact page there, there's a questionnaire. You can take that questionnaire and email it to one of the coaches that are there on the contact page. And they will try to explain it briefly to you, what's going on, tie some things together, and give you a recommendation. That'll be a starting recommendation for the first month of products, supplements, or digestion products, depending on your case. We start almost everyone with a digestion protocol for the first month. And we're going to give you our food advice, the same general advice we give to everyone, but we'll give it to you all in writing what to eat, what not to eat, rough outlines. And if there's anything specific to your case that you need to know, they should tell you that as well. Now, in serious cases like cancer, I usually ask that they are referred to me so I can handle the case. But for everyone else who's listening who just has minor problems, you can just reach out on the contact page. In cancer cases, you should send your questionnaire to my email, which is at, also at the top of the contact page, the general customer service email. And like I said, that is free. We do get paid if you do buy the supplements. But we're there to help, not just with the starting recommendation. We're there to help you implement these things as you go on through the months. Most cases, most problems, we will expect gradual improvement over the months. Some people need more help than others. doesn't matter. That's our job to help you with whatever you need, whatever we can do. So once again, in the description, contact page. Reach out if you got a problem, you want our advice. Even if you don't have a problem, you just want to know what to do to maintain your health and not get a disease later. And we have a lot of younger customers and distributors even. It's really awesome to see young people waking up to this, realizing that they don't want to go down the same life path that their parents and grandparents went. Because the younger people today, they've seen this. They've seen their grandparents die of cancer or die on a respirator from COVID or whatever. And they know that the medical establishment can't help us with a lot of these things. They can't cure heartburn, they can't cure headaches, they have no idea about nutrition, most of them. It's kind of a lost cause, so we see a lot of young people just taking the stuff, taking the 90 essential nutrients just to prevent, you know, off the bad foods, just to prevent problems, and that's fantastic. So anyone can reach out to us, we'll give you our advice no matter what. And finally, we can jump into the book. Alright, first point I saved here, someone's talking about the food rising mini farm grow system. You'd be surprised. You can grow tomatoes and strawberries and lettuce without using soil, without using electricity, and no pumps or anything. Simple system. You'd be amazed. And I'm not going to tell you which author it is in every case, maybe in some cases, where I saved a lot of points where one person is talking about, but there's so many different people here. There's 131 different people. And sometimes the interviewer, who is usually Ty Bollinger, I might save something that he said. 
and I only say this because I wanted to look into the food rising mini farm growing system. And I did look it up. It, it looks pretty simple. We have a little grow system on our windowsill growing herbs, but you do plug it in and you do have to refill the water every few days. But it does grow abundant herbs for us, for sure. We also have some regular potted plants. And I do agree that we should be growing more of our own food. It is possible to produce all of the produce that we consume, depending on where you live. But nonetheless, we can consume quite a lot of it and be assured that it's completely organic and has no chemicals. And that you're eating it close to when it was picked, which is a very important factor. The faster you consume something after it's been picked or killed, if it's an animal, the more nutrients that are going to be in it. Nutrients expire, especially in plants. And nutrients decrease when something is aged artificially, which is something a lot of plants do. They pick them early and then ripen them artificially with ethylene gas. And normally the plants give off ethylene gas to age themselves, but they're picked artificially so that they can make it to the destination and that is a factor, less nutrients in those crops. And of course, you can add extra nutrients, you can add wood ashes and other minerals to your soils, bone meals and compost, all kinds of stuff that you can add to beef up the nutrient value of your food and consume it quickly. All these things are good, something that should be implemented on a widespread scale. And like I said, a lot of these people are going to be blaming food chemicals, preservatives and dyes and all kinds of other things pesticides. They're blaming that for the bulk of the problem. I'm not blaming that for the bulk of the problem, but I'm still interested in growing more of my own food. And I think you should too. Especially since the cost of food has obviously gone up incredibly here in 2023. It is pretty shocking. So any fish that I can get from a lake or food that I can pick off of the vine is a big bonus to me. Alright, next point I saved is from Dr. Axe. Josh Axe, talking about oil of oregano. Yeah, just regular old oregano turned into oil, essential oil, is packed with some incredible compounds. Thymol, Carvacrol, talking about his mom here who had cancer. One of the things that she had chronic issues with is digestion issues. She had leaky gut, chronic constipation, and severe issues with yeast. So she was constantly craving sugar. She even developed a toenail fungus, major yeast and candida issues. I would say candida is almost always going to be present in any chronic state, chronic disease, because the candida or fungus or bacterial problem is a sign that the internal environment is acidic, some would say toxic, because that stuff won't thrive. The way to fix the candida issues is to fix the overall body state, including its alkalinity, which requires nutrients. So that same acid state would promote the development of cancer, basically. So we started doing oregano oil, three drops, three times a day internally, as well as topically on the toenail. It was amazing. When she had tried creams and all these different things in the past, antifungals, and she started doing the oregano oil, and after two months it completely cleared up that issue. So I mean, oregano oil was an incredible part of her treatment. This is still Dr. Axe talking. Now today we also have her using frankincense oil on a regular basis, and many people in this book mentioned frankincense oil. And frankincense oil, if you look at the research today, is probably the most powerful essential oil, if not the most powerful supplement, period, when it comes to natural cancer treatment, in my opinion. Pretty strong opinion. I can't really disagree with it. I have met several people in real life who had a cancer diagnosis and they no longer have cancer. 
and they credit essential oils. A lot of people will tell you that essential oils got them out of it. I would also throw in here for you to keep in mind that anytime you do hear a story, like I met a woman who said that she reversed her breast cancer with carrot oil. Now, I'm going to take her at face value and believe that she used a lot of carrot oil and that she credits that to fixing it. But for you to keep in mind, almost everyone who gets a cancer diagnosis and decides to do something natural, they usually do multiple things. They do not just use oil. They usually they get a juice machine. They start juicing all kinds of things. They throw out all the packaged products in their house. Maybe they start going to the gym. Maybe they start going for jogs or doing yoga in the park. Deep breathing, meditation, all kinds of herbs and supplements. Usually people do many different things. So it's very, very hard to parse this apart. Again, this is the farthest thing from a double-blind study because people do so many different things when they get a cancer diagnosis. And cancer is special for this. This doesn't usually happen if someone has arthritis or something like that. A lot of people are out there trying to fix their pain or fix their diabetes or whatever, and, and the same thing. They do multiple things. They usually try multiple avenues before they come and talk to us. This is how I know this. We often get people who have tried 15 different things. They've tried four different diets. They've tried 50 different supplements. They have a whole cabinet full of supplements and herbs and different medicines. They've been to different doctors and specialists. They've traveled for this, especially when it's their kids. We've talked to people regularly who have spent many, many thousands of dollars. Some of them have had to mortgage their homes and all kinds of things in order to save their child or save themselves. Just saying, always keep in mind that usually people do multiple things, which is good. That's what I would recommend. Multiple changes. Because multiple bad habits, bad circumstances add up to cancer. In almost every cancer case, there's going to be multiple factors contributing to it and multiple things that you should do in order to turn the whole body situation around. You don't just take an anti-cancer compound, be it frankincense or anything else that's mentioned here in the book. You take one, two, three, four, or more anti-cancer compounds. You take a bunch of nutrients. You avoid all the bad foods religiously. You get fresh air. You, you ground your feet. You do all kinds of things. Not just one thing. Not caused by one thing. Not reversed by one thing is the message. All right, next point. Still Dr. Axe talking about frankincense and myrrh. And remember, frankincense and myrrh are two of the three gifts they say the wise men gave to Jesus when he was born, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So two of the three gifts they gave him were essential oils. But you look at something like myrrh, and it's powerful because it really works on the hypothalamus and the liver. So it reduces liver inflammation and also balances hormones. And what happens a lot of times today... A lot of these cancers are estrogen-based cancers, and so what myrrh can do is it really supports the body. Very similar, if people have heard of indole-3-carbonol, or the benefits of cruciferous vegetables, but an even more potent way to where it really helps clear the body of excess estrogen, or xenoestrogens, that are found in things like soy and plastics and parabens today, and really helps detoxify the liver and also boost a very important antioxidant called glutathione which your body produces in almost every cell in the body, which supports detoxification. So that's the way that myrrh essential oil actually helps in fighting cancer. And Ty Bollinger here says, so you should use these together. And Dr. Axe says yes. His mom takes 10 drops of frankincense, 10 drops of myrrh, 
along with some coconut oil and shea butter and makes her own at-home body lotion. And she rubs her entire body with that. Your skin is your body's largest organ, and this is why frankincense and myrrh and other essential oils as well like lavender and sandalwood are so incredible at fighting cancer. I'm not sure if that explained it, just because it's the largest organ, and you're putting this stuff on the skin. Okay. And he's saying this is better than uh, what you can buy at the store, because, you know, so many of these products people are using today, the body lotions, makeups, moisturizers, shampoos, conditioners, they are loaded with carcinogens. They're loaded with parabens and phthalates and sodium lauryl sulfate, and all these different chemicals that cause cancer. Versus if people make their own at-home personal care products with essential oils rather than causing cancer, they're fighting cancer. Yeah, good idea. Products out there are not very good as a whole. Easy to make your own, easy to use less personal hygiene products. And they call them hygiene, but I don't think that's really fair because if you're healthy and you wash just with regular soap and water, you should not have much of a problem. Toothpaste, you can make them yourself. They're quite easy. You can look on Google for natural toothpaste recipes. Most of them are just based on coconut oil or activated charcoal. And yeah, some essential oils. Easy to do. Shampoo, you could even use basic soap. I know a lot of women will disagree with that, but especially for us guys that are low maintenance, short hair, you can use regular soap. No sense. Just plain soap. And if your digestion is healthy and you're nourished and all that, then you really shouldn't smell too bad from anywhere in your body. Limiting the need for personal hygiene products. Next point I saved is in a new interview, Dr. Robert Bell. He's talking about studies about THC, marijuana. A 2007 Harvard Medical School study published in Science Daily showed that hemp's THC decreases lung cancer tumors by 50% significantly reduces the ability of the cancer to metastasize. Cannabis, including THC and cannabidiol, promote the re-emergence of apoptosis so that tumors will stop dividing and die. And he goes on about cannabis, another medicine, decreasing lung tumors by 50%. That's pretty good. It's really good. Next point I saved, new interview, Dr. Russell Blaylock. So he's talking here about uh, something that's very commonly said about cancer, that a cancer cell is basically a primitive cell. It's no longer a, a lung cell or a breast cell or whatever. It's a primordial cell, basically. And I like how he went in here. He said, well, we used to think that any cell could become cancer except for a few limited ones. We thought that if you irradiated a cell enough and damaged its DNA enough, it would become immortal. Just keep growing. Now we find out that's not true. Only stem cells seem to be the source of cancers, and stem cells are the cells that haven't decided what they want to be yet. They're very primitive cells, so they could be anything. A heart cell, a brain cell, a lung cell. So these stem cells are all through your body just sitting quietly, but if you damage the DNA of the stem cell enough through free radicals or whatever, it becomes immortal. Free radicals are unstable particles. You get them from car exhaust and chemicals and burned meat and deep fried food, oxidized oils, and you produce free radicals in your body when you actually burn sugar, so to speak, in your cells for energy, you create free radicals. You create free radicals when you breathe, when you digest things, 
This is why we have antioxidants. They're there to neutralize free radicals. These antioxidants, some of them are made in your body, like glutathione. Some of them we have to eat that are also essential nutrients, like vitamin C, A, E, selenium, zinc. Other ones are made by plants, but they're not essential. Things like resveratrol, turmeric, lycopene in tomatoes, non-essential antioxidants. So the, this is one of the main theories of cancer, that if free radicals damage the DNA of a cell, it can cause it to you know, forget it was an intestinal cell and become a cancer cell. Some disagreement on that theory. I agree that it contributes to the overall stress burden on the body. It contributes to the depletion of antioxidants because if you're in a deficiency state and the body has to deploy antioxidants to deal with your food, to deal with your lunch then it can't deploy them to clean up the damage from the natural metabolization of food and nutrients and stuff. It can't just maintain itself if it's dealing with that because it's already deficient. This leaves you in a state where you don't have antioxidants, and now many things are going to start to fail in the body, and this is one of them. The ability for cells to reproduce properly. So they're saying if you damage the DNA of the stem cell enough, it'll become immortal. And then it just keeps producing more and more cells. It wakes up and it's producing lots and lots, thousands, millions, and billions of cells, and it becomes a cancer. But it's the stem cell that's pouring it out. Kind of like a water hose is pouring out these droplets of water. The trouble with chemotherapy and conventional treatments is that they have no effect on cancer stem cells. They only kill the daughter cells, the cells that are produced by it. So the tumor will shrink and they'll claim success. But you haven't killed the stem cells, so it all just comes right back. And what they found is that when it comes back, it comes back infinitely more aggressive than it did before. And he gets a lot more detailed, but he's talking about using flavonoids. These are, again, plant compounds like plant antioxidants. They're often called antioxidants, but that's not really a fair thing. It's kind of simplified. Really, they're called flavonoids or flavonoids or bioflavonoids or bioflavonoids. Same concept. Things like curcumin and, and turmeric, quercetin, elagic acid, numerous studies. This is one of the hottest fields of research in cancer. The problem is that the clinician is not reading the journal articles in his own journal. They're all in here, the clinical journals. They're in research for oncology journals. They're just not reading them because they don't understand it. It's a lot of biochemistry. It's a lot of mechanism they're not familiar with. Right, doctors are familiar with blocking things, not supporting things. For instance, you see in leukemia research, they have absolutely shown that leukemia is much more curable if you use quercetin. Most of the leukemias are very sensitive to quercetin. By the way, quercetin is in onions and garlic, citrus fruits, apples, parsley, sage, tea, red wine... Olives, grapes, dark cherries, and dark berries, such as blueberries, blackberries, and bilberries, and more, produce quercetin. All of these things, curcumin, quercetin, elagic acid, resveratrol, all of these things inhibit the cancer stem cell. Curcumin actually kills the stem cell, this cancer stem cell. It doesn't bother normal cells, but only cancer stem cells. And turmeric, or curcumin, Curcumin is in turmeric. It will come up many times in this book. Next point here is still from Dr. Blaylock. Here he's talking about MSG. 
monosodium glutamate. It's just a salt of glutamate. The damaging element is the glutamate, not the monosodium. Anything that's a glutamate is an excitotoxin, which is something that excites brain cells or destroy brain cells. There are glutamate receptors in every cell in the body. Not a single cell doesn't have a glutamate receptor. What that means is that if you eat glutamate, now you don't have a blood-brain barrier to even consider protecting you because glutamate goes to all those cells without any interference and your blood level rises very rapidly and very high for over a prolonged period of time. Humans have a higher and more persisting level of glutamate in their blood than any other animal that you experiment on. Once they found out that glutamate receptors are everywhere, they found out that glutamate receptors trigger and stimulate the growth and invasions of cancers of every kind. First, they thought it was brain tumors only, and they demonstrated that if you had high glutamate levels around the tumor, the tumor became highly invasive and grew twice as fast as a tumor that had low glutamate levels. Then they started looking at other tumors. Lung tumors, colon cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, thyroid cancers. Every cancer they looked at, they found the same thing. Glutamate acted as a fertilizer, if you will, a stimulant for the growth of that cancer. It made it grow extremely fast, made it highly invasive, and less likely to be cured. Research has continued, and we're finding out more and more. Now, the second corollary is that if you block the glutamate receptor, the tumor starts slowing its growth. It becomes less invasive, and the tumor will start dying. The cells start dying. It has no negative effect on normal cells, so if you block the glutamate, normal cells reproduce and function just fine. It's only the cancer cells that start dying when you start blocking the glutamate receptor. And then they found that if you take a patient who's getting chemotherapy and you give them these glutamate blockers, the chemotherapy works a lot better. So there's a lot of research now focusing on ways to block the glutaminase enzyme as a cancer treatment. And it holds a lot of promise because when they do it in animals, even with human implanted tumors, the tumors start disappearing. They grow much less rapidly. They become less invasive. And they start shrinking. So the idea is you want to cut down on your glutamate intake. A lot of people are promoting glutamine as a way to heal the gut. Leaky gut syndrome. So they're saying take 5, 6, 10 grams of glutamine. A powerful stimulant for cancer growth. So you don't want to do that. There are better ways to repair the GI tract that work better are safer, and actually inhibit cancer. And I have to admit that uh, I sell a couple of products that do have glutamine in it, and I did believe in glutamine as a workout product back when I used to work at a gym and bodybuild. I didn't believe in creatine. I didn't believe in protein powders. I believed in eating lots of eggs and lots of protein, although now I think protein is overrated a bit. Don't need that much protein. But glutamine is something I did believe in, not strongly, but I didn't suspect it of contributing to cancer, and I'm still a little bit skeptical. I do have to read this guy's book on that. I think I read one of his books recently, and I think it was pretty good, but not that MSG book. And I'm not saying to eat MSG, but yeah, glutamine is in this family here. Gotta clear that up. And anyways, I'm not recommending large doses for a long time. The products that do have glutamine in it that I do sell... Usually, I'm just recommending to take them short-term, maybe even only the first month. So you're saying there's also foods with glutamine in it. Black beans, for example, are high in glutamine. Mushrooms are high in glutamine. Now, he's saying you don't want to eat these. I think he's saying at all. I would definitely say you don't want a lot of beans in your diet, my opinion. Mushrooms, you don't need a ton of them, but there are also you know, incredible compounds in mushrooms and at least the extracts are something that I think are very smart to take. 
And there's a lot of anti-cancer ev- evidence with mushroom extracts and mushroom compounds and mushrooms themselves even. Glutamine might be uh, provoking it a bit and the, the mushroom might be taming it down a bit more than the glutamine. Who knows? I'm not sure. Just reporting to you what I saved here. You want to try to eat only low glutamine foods and a lot of these are your vegetables. And some cancer researchers think, well, this may be why people who are on a vegetarian diet and juicing seem to have these spontaneous cures of cancer. It's because they have such a low glutamine intake and low sugar intake. Both. Getting rid of the two fuels. And yeah, Blaylock's section was quite good there, but moving on. Next point is by Dr. David Brownstein. And I actually just saved his, his book there, Overcoming Thyroid Disorders. And I read it, and it was very good, actually. I would say that now it's my favorite book on the thyroid. Very confident. He covers all of the main things that normal thyroid books cover. I've read a bunch of them now. But, yeah, he goes further, gives a much more satisfying answer to me. Dr. Brownstein. Here he's talking about the PSA, the prostate-specific antigen. It is a fabulous test to pick up prostate cancer. There's no doubt about it. I would actually, I would disagree with that. I would say there is doubt about that, but hey, other people would say that as well. It's a fabulous test to follow people with prostate cancer to see how they're doing. The problem is we haven't changed the age-adjusted mortality much for prostate cancer in the last 75 years, and we're spending all this money on doing these drug therapies. The founder of the PSA test has come up with a couple of articles recently saying that he didn't design that test for everybody to get it to diagnose prostate cancer. And this is the point that I actually saved here. He thinks it is a wrong therapy that we're doing. 80% false positives with the PSA testing. And here we have the American Cancer Society and the powers that be recommend doing your yearly PSA screenings. 80% false positive rates. That's pretty terrible. And let me do a little quick interlude here, because when we say that taking a cancer test, like a PSA test or a colonoscopy prostate exam or mammogram, when we say that there isn't value in doing that, a lot of people think that if you don't get tested, then you might have cancer and not even know it. Well, the problem is, first of all, false positives is a problem. Second of all, a lot of these procedures can actually cause cancer or contribute to cancer themselves, such as mammograms, such as colonoscopies, by the way. A colonoscopy can kill you. It can puncture your intestine and you can die of peritonitis. It's a horrible way to go. You can die from a prostate biopsy as well. If they puncture the prostate at all, it releases prostaglandins and that can stop your heart. And it's not the rarest thing in the world. But more importantly, we say that screening is not prevention. So if they do find something... And you come to us and you say, what do I do to support my body the best I possibly can? What's all the anti-cancer natural stuff that I can do? We could have this long conversation, but most of it centers around you getting rid of all processed foods, getting on a bunch of good foods, real foods, getting on a bunch of supplements. You're not cheaping out here at this point. Support your whole body with the 90 essential nutrients and some extras, extra selenium, extra vitamin C. I would do extra colloidal silver. I would do extra pancreatic enzymes, high protease enzymes, that's going to come up here in this book too. I would take time off, I would go to the mountains, I would go fishing, I would go somewhere, you know, forest, something, beach that has lots of negative ions, really relaxing and calm, lots of things that I would do. But my point here is that all the things that you can do to support your body 
give your body the type of environment that is not going to promote cancer. You should do all that stuff anyways, to whatever degree you can. You should avoid processed foods completely, modern mechanized foods completely. You should absolutely supplement with a baseline dose of the 90 essential nutrients at minimum. You should eat real foods. You should cook them yourself and avoid all these other weird things like MSG. You're never going to put MSG into your own food that you cooked, your own dinner at home. Why would you put MSG in it? Food dyes and colorings and all kinds of things. You would never do it. Save yourself a lot of money and a lot of chemicals by cooking your own food. You should do this anyways is the point, though. Screening is not prevention. Getting a yearly physical or mammogram or whatever doesn't change your habits. No insurance can do that for you. No medical test can do that for you. Screening is not prevention. You are the only one that can change your habits. Your doctor does not control what goes into your mouth. You control that. So they're saying here, the guy that invented the PSA thinks they're doing it wrong. So he continues, the recommended yearly PSA testing for men over the age of 50. What happens is when the PSA elevates, which it can elevate for a lot of reasons beside cancer, if the prostate has been stimulated within 24 hours of blood testing or anything that causes inflammation. But then they get the PSA and they go into the whole cancer industrial complex where they're getting ultrasounds, biopsies, chemotherapy, surgery, radiation, and most men with prostate cancer can outlive it. Great book I'll throw in here, The Invasion of the Prostate Snatchers, which is co-written by a mainstream medical doctor. And yeah, they talk about this, that most men have plenty of time with prostate cancer. It's not an emergency. And I'm still throwing this in here, not quoting from the book, but one of the biggest clues when it comes to prostate cancer is that antibiotics actually help, meaning you can tell there's a, a biotic problem, a bacteria problem, not enough good bacteria in the colon which is where the prostate sits. It sits you know, at the end of the colon, the end of the large intestine, the rectum. And if it's toxic, if it's got a bunch of junk food in it, not enough fiber so it's not clearing out properly, it's sitting in, it's toxic, it's being reabsorbed into the tissues around it, well, the prostate is around it. If it's a toxic environment down there, the prostate, the bladder, the uterus, all these things could be affected by that toxic environment. Again, not enough probiotics here is one of the key things I'm getting at. And so always when we get a prostate cancer case, a person with prostate cancer, one of the main things we recommend, fixing the digestion system, especially by using lots of probiotics and enzymes. So if they don't do anything, so back to the text, if they don't do anything, they'll end up dying of something else. This is very true. I've talked to Dr. Wallach about this, who again, has done thousands of autopsies. He says it's very normal to find pulps or growths in an older man's colon or older woman that's not what killed them they died of a heart attack or whatever pulps don't kill somebody back to the text so we've got a whole mess on that and again we need to search for the underlying cause of why one in three men have it and we need to certainly do a lot less therapy on men with prostate cancer less therapy he's saying less chemotherapy less radiation we're not saving enough men from it and putting way too many men through too many toxic traumatic therapies for it he continues, I think the numbers are that if you're 80 years old, about 88% will have prostate cancer at the time of death if they do an autopsy. 3% will die from it. 8% are affected by it. The rest are dying of something else. Ty Bollinger says, they live with it and they don't even know? That's another thing, right? You go through your yearly exam. Well, maybe you do have pulps in your colon. Again, you come to us whether you have pulps or not. We're going to give you the same advice. 
eat clean, take the nutrients, etc. But if you didn't go and get a diagnosis, your life could just not change at all. People don't just suddenly start withering away and looking like they're dying because of cancer itself. They start to look like that when they do treatment. If you never knew you had cancer and you were never given that stress and that difficult decision and you never started bombarding your body with powerful poisons and radiation, it's very possible to me that whether it's breast cancer, prostate cancer, even lung cancer, that very likely your life could just continue. Yeah, you may have a hard time breathing or something, but it's not like it's literally killing you at that moment. And I share the opinion of many people that if you did nothing at all, you'd be better than doing standard medical treatment. Someone like me is going to recommend you do a bunch of positive stuff. But even if you just simply did not do the chemotherapy or radiation, to me, your chances are very good of surviving way longer than whatever doctor told you. Moving forward, still Brownstein here. Iodine has a lot of jobs in the body. I'm guilty here. I thought it was only used in thyroid hormones. The immune system can't function without it. You can't fight infections without it. One of its main jobs is in the endocrine glands, the hormone glands, including the thyroid, the breasts. You ever think of the breast as a hormone gland? Well, the ovaries, uterus, and the prostate. What are we having problems with out there? The thyroid, the ovaries, the uterus, breasts, and prostate. The fastest growing cancer in the United States is thyroid cancer. These interviews were from a few years ago, by the way. I'm pretty sure they were all in 2015. Maybe some of them were in 2014. Uterine and ovarian cancer are growing at epidemic rates. Iodine's main job is to maintain a normal architecture of those tissues. And he does recommend high doses of iodine, by the way, on the order of several milligrams and more. With iodine deficiency, the first thing that happens is you get cystic formation in the breasts. The ovaries, uterus, thyroid, prostate, and pancreatic cancer is also increasing at epidemic rates. Cysts start to form when iodine deficiency is there. If it goes on longer, they become nodular and hard. If it goes on longer, they become hyperplastic tissue, which is the precursor to cancer. I say that's the iodine deficiency continuum. Iodine has apoptopic properties apoptotic, meaning it can stop a cancer cell from just continually dividing, dividing, dividing until it kills somebody. Iodine can stop this continuum wherever it catches it and hopefully reverse it, but at least put the brakes on what's happening. Over 80% of women suffer from fibrocystic breast disease. That's a precursor to breast cancer, which, as I said, one in seven women have. I say it's an iodine deficiency problem, period. That's what it is. And we either recognize this and start treating it, or we're still going to see one in seven women with breast cancer. Continuing on, I saved a lot from Brownstein. I did a study where I looked at 18 women. Nine had breast cancer. Nine did not have breast cancer. I measured their iodine and bromide levels. And what I did was a test where we collected the urine. What I found was, before any therapy, the breast cancer women had half as much iodine as the non-breast cancer women. Now, they were all low on iodine. But the breast cancer women were lower than the non-breast cancer women. I gave them 50 milligrams of iodine for 30 days, and then I rechecked them. What I found at the end of the 30 days, and there was one other check in the middle there, but what I found was that the breast cancer women had much more bromide, much less iodine than the non-breast cancer women. Iodine is part of the halide family, which includes bromide and fluoride. But out of those three, iodine is the only essential element that has therapeutic value in the body. Bromide and fluoride 
as far as we know, have no known therapeutic value to the body. Bromide, we're getting in toxic amounts in our environment. We're getting amounts in our food supply from brominated vegetable oils. Don't eat vegetable oils, that's what I would say, at all. Many medicines contain bromide as part of their genetic or chemical makeup. I would say limit medicines too, unless it's absolutely a life-saving emergency. What I found in testing every breast cancer, the ones that I've tested, 100% have high bromide levels and low iodine levels. 100%. I've tested over 1,000 patients in general, some with cancer, some without. They all have high bromide levels. Cancer patients generally have higher amounts of bromide. Animal studies have shown that bromide can push iodine out of the body. Bromide can bind where iodine binds to, and bromide gums up the cells and does not work well. What we need is more iodine in our bodies. The only way we're going to get it right now is supplementation, just because we're getting too much in our food, too much bromide, in our drink, and it's in a bunch of consumer goods such as computers and cars. You're probably wearing it in your clothing right now as a fire retardant. Iodine needs to be a continual supplement regimen for, I think, everybody. So with these bromides, too much of one can put out the other. Too much fluoride then theoretically could push out the iodine as well. So iodine can kick out both of these if we start ingesting it again. And of course iodine is highest in seafoods. And in Canada and America, most of us were not eating a lot of seafoods. It's not a big part of our diet. Big part of the Japanese diet, the Hong Kong diet, the Macau diet. Well, Hong Kong and Japan are tied for number one right now in longevity. And Macau is up there as well. I think it's in the top five. Moving forward, what happened was before the 1970s, iodine was used in bakery products as a conditioning agent. For some reason in the early 1970s, they substituted bromide for iodine. It's not clear why, but we started to get all this bromide now in our bakery products. Every slice of bread, cracker, or cookie, cake, now had bromide instead of iodine. Well, if you look at the breast cancer rates and the prostate cancer rates, when they really took off was right about that time. I say that's when our iodine levels really fell off the cliff. What's also happened lately is our soils become more deficient in iodine. I live in a nice suburb of Detroit, and in the Great Lakes area where I live, one of the most iodine deficient areas of the world. And selenium, very deficient. Now it's not just the Great Lakes area. If you draw a line down the center of the country, between the coasts, most of it is iodine deficient, except for the two coasts. This has been going on for a long time. What's not been going on for a long time is this exposure to bromide and fluoride, which has exacerbated this iodine deficiency problem, and I think exacerbated the breast, prostate, thyroid, ovarian, uterine, pancreatic problems that we're seeing now. And by the way, he recommends Lugol's solution, very famous iodine brand. He's saying the refined salts, iodized table salt is just not a good source, not enough. And you couple that with the bromide and the fluoride overexposure, and it's a recipe for disaster. So salt is not the best way to get iodine in. So he says add Lugol's. He thinks it's impossible to get enough through our diet right now in the world we live in. The best sources of iodine in the diet are the sea vegetables such as seaweed or ocean fish. The problem is that the longer the fish has been out of the ocean, the less iodine the fish has, as it sublimates it out in a gaseous phase. I, di I didn't know that actually before reading this. The fish have other problems such as high mercury levels to them. I still think a better way is we're going to need to supplement with iodine. Average doses I find for people, 12 to 25 milligrams for most people. 
If they have breast, lung, thyroid, prostate, ovarian, uterine problems, they may need more. A good holistic doctor can test your levels, and the best way to test them is urinary levels. And he describes this all in his book, Iodine, Why You Need It, Why You Can't Live Without It. He says a lot more interesting stuff, but I'm moving forward to the next point I saved here, Dr. Rashid Buttar. But what people don't understand is that it's not the cancer that really hurts people. Statistically, 42-46% to of patients that have cancer will die of cachexia, which is basically wasting of protein. They basically lose all of their lean body mass. So that leaves between 58 and 54% of patients that didn't die of cachexia. And the joke, which is only maybe half funny, is that the rest of them will die from the treatment. In other words, really nobody dies from the cancer. If you think about it, when a patient gets immunosuppressed and they have cancer, what actually takes them? Liver failure, kidney failure, pneumonia, sepsis. But all these things are usually associated with also the person getting chemo and radiation. Skipping forward, still Dr. Buttar. Chemotherapy, yes, it can kill the cancer cells, possibly. It can kill any cell. Here's the issue that I have with chemotherapy. When I see somebody that's making chemotherapy, and they have to wear hazmat suits and gloves, and you can't touch it because it's toxic, then why are you going to give it to a person who's already sick? Does that make any sense? You ask a three-year-old child this question. I would bet you that 90% of the three-year-old children would get it. If that looks dangerous, then I shouldn't touch it. That's it. So yeah, this is supposed to be treatment, but they have to handle the stuff with hazmat suits when they're making it. Alright, next point. Still Dr. Buttar talking about circulation, lymphatic circulation. If you could describe cancer in one word, well, it's not one word, it would be two words, lymphatic stagnation. So when you're actually exercising, you're stimulating that lymphatic. You're getting all the stuff to start flowing. You've got two types of circulation in the body. You've got typically the blood, which everybody recognizes as the circulation. But you've also got the lymphatics. These are the lymph nodes and the drainage system in the body that is basically there to remove waste product. So when people get the lymph nodes enlarged and the doctors say, Oh my god, lymph nodes, we've got to take them out. You're just taking out the oil filters. Don't ever have your lymph nodes taken out. Because if a lymph node gets hard when you've got cancer, it means it's doing its job. It's filtering the cancer. It's holding on to that stuff. It's keeping it from disseminating out. You take that filter out, it's like having your car. You've got a filter that's blocked. What do you do? You take out the filter and say, Okay, now I don't have a problem. Nothing's blocking it. But now you've got all that sludge that was going into the filter before, now going right into the engine. You don't want that to happen. So the lymph node is part of the lymphatic drainage system. And I didn't say any more, but I'll comment here that I, I did talk about this in my book, Fake Diseases, in the cancer chapter. And I recommend it all the time. We should move our lymphatic system around. Regular exercise, yes, but I like going further than that. You could use a rebounder, which is a small trampoline. You can buy that, put it in your house, in your mudroom, or outside, or whatever. 20 to 40 minutes a day with any lymphatic exercise is the therapeutic dose to me. This includes swimming as well. It also includes a chi machine. It's my favorite machine for the job. Just a little machine you put your legs into, two little saddles there, and it moves your feet back and forth in a rhythmic motion. Very, very powerful machine. You could also use a shaker machine, also called a rumble pad or a vibration plate. You could also use a swing set, where you go high enough to feel that whooshing feeling 
on the way down, like when you're going down a hill really fast in a car or a roller coaster going down the hill, that feeling is the lymphatic fluid moving around. 20 to 40 minutes a day. Therapeutic dose. Next point I saved is by a Dr. Cass. They're talking about their book, Summary of What I Do in My Practice, and it empowers people to become their own doctor. Taking charge of your health, taking the questionnaire, for example. There's a cool questionnaire right at the beginning where you can figure out whether your issues have to do with thyroid, blood sugar, adrenals. I'm pretty sure I just saved this because I like when other professionals talk about the use of a questionnaire. Because a lot of people think that you need a blood test or some sophisticated medical test with modern technology to tell you if you have a problem or what that problem is. But I use a questionnaire. I do this mostly online. I don't have an office that you can come to. I don't have any equipment. So how can I help people with no equipment? Well, I need to know what's going on. So we have a questionnaire. And for most people, the questionnaire is enough. For most people, our basic recommendation it is enough. We don't need any more information, don't need any tests, don't need to see the person, don't need to touch them, don't need any pictures. Some cases can be more complicated and we do have to look further, but I just like that they were talking about using a questionnaire there. Next point I saved is from a Dr. Chilkov. He's also talking about stem cell cancer cells. So when we go back to some of our big levers, which are resveratrol, curcumin, and berberine, there's a famous Chinese herb called Huang King, and that is Scutellaria bicalinasis. And in China today, modern Chinese herbal medicine, you'll find Scutellaria in almost every anti-tumor formula. And it's got many, many phytochemicals, one of which is berberine. And berberine is very bitter, and it stimulates detoxification. Berberine can also control insulin. So again, that's a driver of tumor cells. I would say there's almost always a blood sugar problem involved in tumors. Or cysts, or fibroids, or pulps, any abnormal growth. Skin tags, canker sores. Blood sugar problem is almost always part of the overall metabolic problem that's going on. And he's saying, and because in the United States, over 40% of people are diabetic or pre-diabetic, this is one of the great drivers of cancer in the United States today. And that Chinese herb also has some other flavanols that can turn off inflammation, turn off apoptosis or cell division, and act on stem cells. Next point I save, still Dr. Chilkov. Well, think about a smaller body mass and the same amount of chemical exposure. So if an adult is in a room, and the little kid is in a room, just by body mass, the kid's overwhelmed with more chemical exposure in a smaller body. And this is because Ty Bollinger asks a bunch of different people why they think that so many babies are getting cancer. So he's saying that the person with the smaller body weight is always going to get a higher dose. If you and a child both drink a single glass of tap water, you're getting the same dose, but it's the dose per pound of body weight that matters. So say you both get 10 micrograms. You got 10 micrograms per 150 pounds. They got 10 micrograms per 15 pounds. Same dose, but it's 10 times higher for them. So the chemicals in our environment will hit children a lot harder. Next point I saved from a Dr. Coldwell. 
The main cause is vaccination. This is again for the question, why the explosion in childhood cancer? He says the main cause is vaccination. What people need to understand is you cannot put heavy metals, you cannot put dioxin, you cannot put mercury, you cannot put live cancer viruses into a human body and hope that all will be well. We know every vaccination causes brain inflammation, every single vaccination. They all have heavy metals in there. That's why we have an explosion of brain tumors, because the mercury, the thimerosal, crosses the blood-brain barrier without a problem. And many people actually blame vaccines in here. I do have a vaccine episode called Vaccine Illusions. You can check that out. And I would agree it can't be good. It has to be contributing overall to chronic disease in America especially, where they use the most vaccines. Next point, still Dr. Coldwell. He said, my sister had cervical cancer. I just had her do three douches with sodium bicarbonate, baking soda, and it was gone within 24 hours. Cervical cancer, gone in 24 hours. Dr. Simonici wrote a book called Cancer is a Fungus. And Doug Kaufman also has a book about it. And I think I might have just saved that point because I wanted to find that book. And I don't think I could find a copy. And he's saying the tumor, or the fungus, that's why cancer can only exist in an acidic environment because a fungus can only exist in an acidic environment. Dr. Simonici has videotapes where he opens up cancer patients, pours sodium bicarbonate in a liquid form onto the organ, onto the cancer. You see on contact the white. Every cancer cell is white. The white is a fungus. But you see every one of these cells going away and the tumor disappearing on contact. That is so phenomenal. And when you understand, see, there are two ways of looking at cancer. In my opinion, cancer is caused by mental and emotional stress. 86%. That's very specific. 86%. So that only leaves 14% for toxemia, all the food preservatives, and basically you get poisoned. And since 1911 and 1936, when Otto Warburg and Max Planck won a Nobel Prize in medicine proving that cancer can only exist in an acidic, toxic, oxygen-lacking environment, we know that since 1911, we have needed just to focus on how do I get the body alkaline and how do I get oxygen in the system, both of which are extremely, extremely easy. And when we still had the former Soviet Union going and Professor Munford from Nandina did the oxygen molecule therapy, and he kind of gets off course there, but he's talking about a bunch of different things like B17 or Latrile, turmeric, the Budwig diet, the Gerson diet, the Hoxy formula. And the next point I saved, I thought this was clever. They should run from the cure because they organize a lot of these big runs for the cure. When I was growing up in Canada, we all did the Terry Fox run, which big fundraiser all the kids do for cancer research. But he's saying they should run from the cure. Because what they're really running for is chemotherapy. Drugs. Radiation. That's all they're researching. That's all they're interested in. All these big cancer societies and whatever. But he's saying they should run from the cure. And he's talking about mammograms here. You have to understand 50 pounds of pressure on the most granulated load of tissue on the hum- of the human breast. 50 pounds of pressure during the mammography. Yeah, because they crush the breast down. That cannot be good. Then the radiation. Every mammogram basically ups your risk of cancer by 2%, just in general. Early detection just means early death, because the earlier they find it, the earlier they start cutting you. The earlier they start treating you with chemotherapy and radiation, and the earlier you die. 
There's no such thing as early detection that will save your life. People basically virtually die within a certain amount of time, no matter what, after diagnosis. Breast cancer grows 7 to 12 years to a size in the breast that you can even diagnose it. So there is no rush. You know, they find breast cancer. Oh, you have to go and get surgery tomorrow morning. And by the way, I should say that I don't agree with every single author here, and sometimes they take a bit of a dramatic turn or maybe say something that I don't completely agree with, but I'm just reading you what I saved here. And on this tomorrow morning thing, yeah, we recently got a case, like last week, a cancer case. Someone's asking me what to do. But they got diagnosed, and then two days later, they removed the pancreas, the gallbladder, and the spleen. All three of them. Two days after diagnosis. This is such an extreme procedure. There's no way this person can ever get back to 100%. It's physically impossible. There's no way they'll be able to live to their maximum life expectancy. They've just chopped years off, if not decades off, of their maximum life expectancy. Such a dramatic thing here. Two days. Can you imagine? You're feeling a bit off. Or maybe you're not even feeling a bit off. You go in for your checkup or your mammogram or your PSA test or whatever. And the next thing you know, you know, it's Tuesday. You're scheduled for Thursday to get three of your organs removed. Life-altering decision you did not even have time to make or get a second opinion on. It's pretty wild. Yeah, they put... 50 pounds of pressure on the breast. That's not a good part of the mammogram. The other bad part is the radiation. Mammograms are a bad idea to me. Thermography is much safer, by the way, P.S., but you're still in the same conundrum where you're waiting for something to break before you take action. Again, you can take all the same action right now. You can take all the nutrients, avoid all the bad foods, avoid a lot of the toxins. You can move your body, move your lymphatic system around, you can take off the wire bras and stop wearing them as much as possible because they also pinch the lymphatic flow. And in fact, we've had several women where they had a growth, like a cyst or, you know, the doctors will say, well, we don't know. We have to do a biopsy on it to see if it's cancer. So we're just talking about early stage growth detection here. And we've had several women tell us that just stopping the wire bra stopped the growth. It got rid of the growth quickly, telling you that it was just a lymphatic blockage, basically. So elastic bras are better than wire bras, but even better is no bra at all. But my favorite, especially for the large-chested women where I realize that it's not practical to not wear a bra, my favorite is the shirts that have the padding built into them. And I have seen some women just sew the pads into the shirts that they like. Don't know, just saying that when you don't clog up that hose, because the breast is a basically a system of pumps or hoses, when you don't clog that up, sometimes the growth just goes away. And there are other women and, and doctors that talk about when you stop wearing the bra, you can actually strengthen the muscles that hold the breast up. So they can actually become more firm or perky. Next point, the worst thing is the needle biopsy. Cancer is the cure. People don't understand that. Cancer is there to save your life. When your body is so toxic that you're going to die of the poison, the body builds a bag and stuffs all the poison in there and locks it up. The tumor. So now imagine, this tumor is full with poison. Imagine an air balloon filled with water. Poison. So now you come with the needle biopsy, and you pinch into this balloon, or into this lymph node, or into this so-called tumor. What happens is that it explodes into the entire system. So the tumor was there to protect the cancer, to protect it from spreading around. 
Next point I saved here is from Lordez Cologne. I think that's how you say her name. She's an actor. Her daughter had this severe brain injury where she lost all the white matter. And so they clinically considered her brain dead. And so the doctor was going to keep my daughter alive until I got there. So I flew out to Chicago, and before I got there, I did research. I got clear. They are not going to turn off the machines, and I know this is going to be fixable. So I started learning through all my research that fish oil, high doses of fish oil, rebuilds the brain. Because when you're in the mother's womb, the one thing that your brain is built from is omega-3 fatty acids. So if you saturate the body with omega-3 fatty acids, the body will then kick in high gear and start taking that and doing what it needs to rebuild whatever's missing. I would jump in and say, yeah, it's absolutely true. The body does concentrate. It hogs the omega-3s. And how I actually got started in this business, before I got my own health result for my stiff man syndrome, which was very dramatic, but it came later, was I had a girlfriend who had post-concussion syndrome. And, you know, she had to wear sunglasses inside and stuff. And she couldn't stay awake for more than like four hours or something, she'd have to go to sleep, headaches and all this. One of her pupils was bigger than the others, right? Pretty severe post-concussion syndrome. And she turned it around completely with our program, Dr. Wallach's program, got off the bad foods, got on the 90 essential nutrients, but especially high doses of essential fatty acids and fatty foods. And she completely turned it around. So she's saying to the doctors, that she wants them to give 20 grams of fish oil daily through the feeding tube. And I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but she was getting a lot better, and then the doctor discontinued that. She eventually you know, gained control of the situation, but yeah, the point of the story was that it was working, and so the doctor stopped it. They didn't want to do it because it was natural. All it was was just adding fish oil into the feeding tube, and they did not want to cooperate. Tragically, I've heard many, many such stories. Real life and books. The whole world of medical nightmares out there. Most of them are just simply caused by Dr. Hubris. Next point I saved here is from a Dr. Connolly. And we know how to prevent cancer. I tell every patient, it is very easy to prevent cancer, but it is not easy to treat cancer. So if we can all learn how to find and detect, and we have amazing science and technology to figure out and prevent cancer, but people just don't know. And I think that was all I was interested in. Easy to prevent cancer, not easy to treat cancer. Don't wait until your engine seizes before you change the oil. Next point I saved is from a Dr. Contreras. And he's saying that music and laughter are the most potent immunostimulating agents available. There is no drug, there is no vaccine that is more potent to stimulate the immune system. There is a very interesting study that shows for every minute of anger... You will depress significantly and measurably the quality and quantity of your immune system. One minute of anger is six hours of depression. One minute of laughter will boost significantly your immune system for 24 hours. That is why children up to the age of five laugh around 400 times a day, and adults only about 40. The reason why children can eat dirty and be dirty all the time is because they're laughing. I thought that was interesting, and yeah, I do believe that anger poisons you. There's a great book called The Art of Power by a Vietnamese man, and he talks about how you being angry at somebody doesn't hurt them at all, but it hurts you, it poisons you. There's definitely no value in it. 
And this is one of the problems with our overuse of cell phones and social media, because we're constantly shown bad news from all over the world. And there is genuinely a lot of bad stuff happening. The 2020s here have turned out to be an awful decade, at least the start of it. We're surrounded by bad things and we're constantly aware of it. And all this anger and frustration and feelings of powerlessness can really, really pollute our immune system. So Ty here is saying laughter is the best medicine. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And next little point I saved here from the same doctor. There are studies that show that the most immune depressing colors are white and blue. The typical hospital colors. Imagine that. We painted all of our walls in mauve. Because there are studies that show it is the most immune-lifting color. Interesting, I have not looked into this, but white and blue depressing the immune system? I wouldn't be surprised, at least if we're talking about paint colors. Next point I saved here is from a Dr. Cornu Labat. And they're talking about a compound here called BEC5. It's a natural compound. It's extracted from the Solanaceae family, which eggplant is a part. The devil's apple is the plant where the original idea came from. Essentially, it's a couple of glycoalkaloids that, when combined, have a very selective receptor, emoliated, anti-cancer effect. What it means is that these two compounds, because of the carbohydrate residue they have, trigger a response with very specific receptors that happen to be overexpressed in cancer cells and underexpressed or not expressed at all in normal cells. So some authors here are more uh, eloquent than others. I can't tell you that I really understood that sentence either, don't worry. When this compound hits the receptor and joins in, it is internalized into the cell and it triggers what is known as apoptosis. It has programmed that cell. Characteristically, cancer cells have this concept of immortality where this programmed apoptosis is supposed to leave room for the next generation so they die. Well, that doesn't happen with cancer cells. So they keep going and going and going and going. BEC5 triggers that apoptosis and tumor cells die, and it selectively does that with tumor cells. And so far, in all the animal studies and on the online studies that have been done, have shown that it has a very broad spectrum, so it works on a lot of different cancers. And it's still being used on skin cancers. This is a cream that's over-the-counter in those jurisdictions where it's legal. It can be bought over-the-counter. You apply the cream and it starts killing layer by layer the cancer cells of the skin cancer. You know, skin cancer is the most common cancer, and it just eliminates the cancer. BEC5. And I'd love to dive deep on each one of these things, but uh, this would literally be like a 20-hour podcast here. So the next point I saved is from a different author. Another pretty technical segment. 
Fish oil is a very powerful thing. We are seeing studies have shown that certain cancer rates with fish oil are lower and we are talking about including your fish oil. If you have vitamin E, alpha, beta, gamma, delta, tocotrienol and alpha, beta, gamma, delta, tocopherol, those are different forms of vitamin E, tocopherols and tocotrienols. You are now adding some oxidation protection to the oils and giving antioxidant benefit to the body itself. We like it when you have EPA and DHA, which are omega-3, they're both omega-3, to include borage seed or primrose oil because the GLA from those combined with the EPA from the fish magnifies the anti-inflammatory property, according to the research of the fish oil. So that when you include GLA, the omega-3, EPA and DHA, which are not the only omega-3s, but those are the main ones, those omega-3s work better when you have GLA. And that would explain why Dr. Wallach uses borage in his essential fatty acid formula. It improves the anti-inflammatory property. Instead of getting prostaglandin E2, you get prostaglandins 1 and 3, which are more anti-inflammatory. A bunch of different prostaglandins. We're not going to get into it. Not today. So, then adding vitamin D and vitamin A at the levels of cod liver oil, and then the amazing nutrient astaxanthin. If you want to know about a nutrient, go out there and do a web search on astaxanthin and look at all the benefits ascribed to this nutrient that is a small molecule antioxidant that has been shown to be able to cross the blood-brain barrier and also into the eyes as an eye antioxidant and so on. And it is said to increase your tolerance to sun radiation or external radiation sources. For instance, gamma radiation when you were flying on a plane and so on. And he's talking about adding more superfoods into your regiment. And the next point I saved, different author, talking about beta-glucan which is another very famous, well, I guess, moderately famous anti-cancer compound, beta-glucan. And we do have it in some of our products. Several people I know in this business use it as one of their primary recommendations when somebody does have cancer. And this guy is a cancer conqueror here, Enoch DeBus, or DeBus. He's a certified nutritionist as well. He's talking about beta-glucan. I found out that it enables the immune system to fight off anything that your body has to fight off. Cancer, sugar, diabetes, you name it. And I was hoping for a little bit more details or study there on the beta-glucan, but it was just that point. It was a little bit frustrating reading this book because, again, the authors, they only have a few minutes to kind of spit it all out. So if you do get some of these very interesting speakers, you want to hear them go on and on and give you all the juicy details. But they can really all only do an introduction. Okay, next uh, point I saved here is by a doctor. I'm not going to try and pronounce her name. Ty Bollinger asking, talk about plant estrogens. Okay, food has been around since we've been around. Plant estrogens do not act like aggressive estrogens. They are very protective. They protect against DNA damage. They block the estrogen receptor cells. They actually reduce the level of circulating estrogens in the body. Flax, for example, a study that I like to quote, there was a study done at the University of Toronto where they took women who were getting ready to have surgery. They measured their cancer markers and their tumor levels. And for a month, they gave them five teaspoons of ground flaxseed in a muffin, which probably was made with white flour and sugar. But anyway, the ground flaxseed was in there. And in 30 days, their markers went down by 30 to 71%, just with ground flaxseed. Fermented soy, if you use non-GMO organic whole fermented soy... It has a very protective effect. It turns on the P53 suppressor gene. 
It reduces the circulating estrogens. It is a protective food. Look at the Asian society. They have used soy in their diet for thousands of years and their breast cancer rates are much lower. Next point, same doctor. Let's talk about aromatase inhibitors. Remember, ACE means it's an enzyme. It's an enzyme inhibitor. Aromatase inhibitor or drugs like tamoxifen. Tamoxifen is a drug that most women are put on when they have breast cancer, but they don't tell them that it is classified as a carcinogen by the American Cancer Society and the World Health Organization. So does it make sense to give a woman a carcinogenic drug that will cause cancers in other parts of her body to prevent cancer? Again, it goes back to what we can do to support the body and support the immune system, and things like fermented soy and ground flax seed can have very similar effect to drugs like tamoxifen. And Ty asks, is there a connection? You mentioned some good foods. Is there a connection between the foods you eat and breast cancer? Absolutely. You go into a chemotherapy suite, or you go to a hospital, and what do you see? Sugar everywhere. And if there is one food that women need to avoid if they are on a breast cancer healing journey, it's sugar, because we know that sugar feeds cancer. Cancer cells have more insulin receptor sites than healthy cell. So the first cell that gets fed the sugar is the cancer cells. So any type of GMO food, the sugars, anything that's packaged, can certainly lower the immune system and increase the risk of cancer. And further on, she's talking about thermography. Thermography cannot diagnose cancer, but it can detect physiological changes going on in the body. And we know that mammograms, according to a 25-year Canadian study that was just published last year, mammograms are just as effective as a self-breast exam. Bingo. Do your own breast exam. Once a month, write it down. And mammograms have not decreased breast cancer mortality rate. Not by even 1%. So, screening is not prevention. Them catching it earlier has not changed their mortality rate for dealing with cancer, not by 1%. Alright, next thing I saved here was from Erin Elizabeth. Pretty famous in the social media alternative health world. I just wanted to look into her protocol called Lyme Light. L-Y-M-E for Lyme disease. Lyme Light. And she's saying the diet was a big part of it. The first thing was the foods that I stopped eating. Most important thing, don't eat the bad foods, don't eat processed foods. I was eating all organic, even if it was homemade or at an organic deli or stuff that I made myself. Non-GMO organic grains. Some sweets that were organic. Everything organic. So actually she's saying that she was already eating organic, but even though... It was organic, some of it was sweets, like sugar, and she was saying, I had no energy, I had cravings because the adrenal fatigue. I crave grains and sugar. So she was eating organic grains and sugar. Not a good idea here. I really just cut out almost all the grains, and immediately there was a difference for me. Yeah, I'm not surprised. So I was thinking she had some specific herb or something for the lime, but I don't think she did. And next point was from a Dr. Fisher, and he was saying 18% of all cancers are caused by infection. No one talks about that. 23% of all cancers are related to obesity. This year, overweight and obesity in the U.S. alone will hit 75%, with 41% being obese. And he's saying genetics is small, just 5 to 10%. I would say 0 to 0% is genetic. He says 41% of all cancers are due to environmental factors. And he didn't really elaborate on the uh, cancers caused by infections. I was interested in that. Lots of people are saying that, especially with candida, but bacteria as well. 
Next point I saved here, still Dr. Fisher, thought this was interesting. I worked with Dr. Igor Spirinov in 1986 when Chernobyl blew up. Smirnov was one of the teams of scientists that came in to determine not why are there three million cases of cancer in this area, but why these people didn't have it. And you never heard of that. Igor Smirnov went down and found that there's this group of people that didn't have cancer. And they didn't seek the reason to help the others. They wanted to know why these people didn't. And they found it was related to the water. The mechanism was, if you can superhydrate a cell, i.e. if you can get enough water into the cell so it functions optimally, it can basically take on almost anything. So what was happening was the structure of this water was changing by coming over the Caucasus Mountains and coming instead of being isotetrahedral or pyramidal, it was coming in a linear format. That in itself doesn't mean much, but it can access something called aquaporins that go into every cell, carry nutrition into every cell, bring toxins out of every cell, but that still doesn't matter. It's allowing the cell, allowing the physiological function to be increased. Once again, not a cure, just enabling the body to do that. No one ever heard of it, called molecular resonance effect technology. And these people were drinking this water. This water was allowing them to hydrate. And they gave a Nobel Prize to Dr. Peter Agra in 2003 for discovering aquaporins. When he found the water, he didn't know the reason. We kind of figured it out after. There are these openings that are one water molecule wide in every cell. We know that if you hydrated a cell properly, for example, viruses in a dehydrated cell can multiply easily and hydrated cannot. And on that note, I think it's a good time to tell you a little bit about hydrogen water. Now, this is not a sponsored ad. I've never been paid to read any sort of an ad. But I do promote things that I do believe in. And in this case, I have come to believe in hydrogen water. Now, one of the most radical of the free radicals is called a hydroxyl radical. It's an OH negative molecule. One oxygen, one hydrogen. Now, we all know that water is H2O. Remember that point we were just talking? If you can hydrate a cell properly, it can do almost anything. Well, I know people who sell structured water based on this principle as well, and people who promote clean water and water filtration in general, and drinking lots of water... There's a great book out there called You're Not Sick, You're Thirsty by Dr. Batman. And I commonly say this myself. In fact, in one of my books, Everything You Should Know About Healthy Blood Sugar, there's a whole dehydration chapter there because I know that many, if not most, cases of a blood sugar problem have chronic dehydration at play. People who are consuming coffee and sugar drinks and energy drinks, all kinds of diuretics that speed up the rate that we lose water. And water-soluble nutrients are chronically deficient as well. Calcium, magnesium, potassium being top of the list there. B vitamins as well. So we need water-soluble nutrients and water to be properly hydrated. But in general, we're not consuming enough water as a society. And one big, big benefit that people can get is by increasing their water to the normal dose of half a gallon to one gallon per day, roughly, for an adult. Two to four liters. And more if you exercise more, eat more, drink more alcohol, or consume any more diuretic and extra coffee, you need more water to balance that. Just saying, dehydration is absolutely one of the major contributors to chronic disease, in my opinion. Everything from joint pains to headaches and migraines, full-blown blood sugar problems, and metabolic disease. 
And where hydrogen water comes in is because this is water that has extra hydrogen ions, free hydrogen ions floating around. So it's not H3O. It's a bunch of H2O water just with positive hydrogen ions added. So these extra hydrogen atoms go in and bond with those hydroxyl radicals in the body. Remember, the hydroxyls are OH negative. We're putting in an H positive here. So that forms H2O, water. Basically, it turns a free radical into a water molecule. So if this hydroxyl radical was inside the cell, then boom, we've actually created water inside the cell. And this is water that you're not drinking. It's being created from the hydroxyl radical, which is a byproduct of metabolic processes in your body, just like many other free radicals. But we're also exposed to hydroxyls in the atmosphere from car exhaust and other pollutants in the house and office. And anytime you're around people and they're wearing hairsprays and other chemical deodorants and stuff, you're just in an environment with more hydroxyl radicals. So this actually turns those radicals into water. And there are several ways to ingest extra hydrogen. One of them is with hyperbaric hydrogen therapy. Another one is hydrogen capsules. And then you can get machines that put hydrogen into water. And I have actually partnered with a hydrogen water company, a machine company, and they actually have the highest parts per million out of any machine. Many of the studies that you'll see, and there are thousands of them, by the way, this is why I became so interested in hydrogen water, is because they have thousands of double-blind studies nonetheless. This is full-blown major research institutions and militaries investigating hydrogen water with no expenses spared on the study here, so there's tons of research. And most of them will use about 0.8 parts per million, whereas the Zontos machine has a guaranteed 2 to 3 ppm, but even as high as 3.5 or 3.6 ppm or more which is quite a lot. And you can check this out in more detail on zontoswater.com. The link is in the description of this podcast. And they do have a purchase link for me where I will get a commission if you purchase one at zontoswater.com slash not us, lowercase not us. But I know it's going to be a big decision. This was actually a big investment for me. The hydrogen water machine is not that cheap. It costs more than my car. It's a cheap car, but still. But I knew that to even properly try it out, for both me and my wife, because of course she always wants to do something new if I'm doing it with health, we get a new product she wants to share it. So just to investigate it for myself and her for three months, which is a fair trial of anything, I knew it was going to cost me several hundred, if not more than a thousand dollars. And that would be true with the capsules as well, the dissolvable capsules. If you're trying to get the proper dose, it's just going to cost quite a bit, so... I jumped in, I partnered with this company, I paid for the machine myself, they did not give it to me for free, did not get a discount or anything. And this was before I came back to Canada here for the holidays as I'm recording here by myself, but I took it for a few weeks, and I can honestly say my sleep improved quite a bit. That's been my biggest problem, where I spend half my time in Houston, Texas, and I can not sleep properly. Too much EMF and radiation, I am quite sensitive to it, I have tons of EMF devices, my nutrition is on point. Nothing else changes, but when I go there, or any city or suburb for that matter, I can't sleep properly. It's driven me nuts over the last couple of years. The thing that made the biggest difference was the grounding mat for the bed. You plug it into the ground, 
it helped quite a bit, but still. Adding the hydrogen water really brought my sleep almost to 100%, if not to normal. I know it takes a little while to get used to things, and I only had a few weeks on it, but I was impressed with that because I know there's research for hydrogen water mitigating the effects of radiation. And again, there's thousands of studies. You can look into this. Even mainstream outlets do not dismiss hydrogen water, and most of them dismiss everything alternative. And the oldest reference that I could find for radiation goes back all the way to 1964, when Dr. Tappel pointed out that the evidence suggested that the ideal radiation protector is a molecule that can release and accept electrons and hydrogen atoms easily without itself becoming dissociated from the journal Radiation Research. But there's also a ton of research about hydrogen water and hydrogen in general, hyperbaric hydrogen, and cancer. Like here, hydrogen-rich saline attenuates chemotherapy-induced ovarian injury. Ovarian injury due to chemotherapy. It attenuates that, means it makes it less damaging via the regulation of oxidative stress, again, neutralizing the hydroxyls. Hydrogen-rich water prevents progression of non-alcoholic steatohepatitis and accompanying hepocarcinogenesis in mice. So liver cancer in mice, non-alcoholic liver disease, prevents the progression. Hydrogen-rich water prevents the progression. Hydrogen-rich water improves neurological function recovery in experimental autoimmune encephalomyelitis mice. Hyperbaric hydrogen therapy, a possible treatment for cancer. And in that study in mice, a marked regression of the tumors was found, leading to the possibility that hyperbaric hydrogen therapy might also prove to be of significance in the treatment of other types of cancer. Hydrogen protects mice from radiation-induced thymic lymphoma, Consumption of hydrogen-rich water protects against early tumor promotional events in rats. And so on. Ton of research on hydrogen water. I know it's a big investment, but when we're talking about things to really aggressively combat all of the toxins that are out there in our modern world, I do think we need to go above and beyond nutrition. Nutrition is still the foundation. Gotta stay away from the food system as much as possible. Gotta overdose on the nutrients, basically. We need more of them, partially because of all this extra free radical damage. We already recommend taking more antioxidants than the longest-lived populations get. Why? Because they have a relatively stress-free lifestyle. Lots of family support. Lots of naps. They don't have a mortgage. They don't have traffic. And they don't have all the extra toxins, the car exhaust, the negative ions from the air conditioning units and central heating, all the chemicals in our furnitures and rugs. Like this is even if you eat 100% organic food, you're still surrounded in an environment that has a lot more toxins in it than even the longest lived people do. So we already recommend taking more antioxidants than they do. And this is a super antioxidant. And this turns a free radical into water in the cells, which I think is one of the most important things and why we see such a really incredible benefit across all spectrums of disease, basically, that are investigated. There seems to be an effect on pretty much everything. And I do think it is very wise to look into it. At the time of this recording, they're just finalizing their ability to take payments on this. So you don't have to pay it all at once. I know not everybody has this type of money in their pocket. It's about 4500 bucks, by the way. There's two different models. One of them's 4200 one of them's 4500 Again, I know it's a big investment, but to me it's worth it if I can do everything I possibly can to keep myself and my wife and whoever else is drinking from that machine healthy. 
So once again, you can go to zontoswater.com. You can read more about it. And you can go to zontoswater.com slash not us to purchase where I get the credit. Link is in the description once again. And we will move on to the next point that I saved. All right, next point I saved here is from a Dr. Forsyth. He's talking about the Forsyth immune protocol. So I just saved that because I wanted to look into it a little bit more. He says here that he uses a Myers cocktail, which has DMSO in it, a sulfur compound. It has selenium, important immune stimulants, vitamins, minerals, amino acids. And they also use high-dose vitamin C from 50 to 70 grams of vitamin C twice a week. Also using IV hydrogen peroxide. And then the poly-MVA, which is the lipoic acid palladium complex, which is very effective. And then the alkaline nepheo amino acid IV. So basically what happens is they're getting immune therapies three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. They're getting IPT, which is basically putting the insulin right in with the chemo right from the start. So you could get less of a reaction. So you're not going to get the severe hypoglycemic reactions. So he's talking about low-dose chemotherapy here. But I just wanted to see what the Forsyth immune protocol was. Sounds a little bit complicated, but like I said, best success will be from using multiple anti-cancer compounds, multiple supportive compounds, like nutrients, and other positive things. Exercise, sunshine, grounding, etc. Next point I saved is from a Dr. Franson. A healthy cell, we have equipment to measure that at the moment, it's full of light and it radiates a little bit of this light. This light filters through the DNA into all these millions of miracles of chemical processes. But a diseased cell, it contains less light. It's like it loses light. It leaks light. A cancerous cell is almost dark. It can't contain hardly any light. So the intelligence cannot filter through the DNA and healthy processes in this cell. So I think prior to nutrition, the body, the cells, must be flooded with light. That's the first priority of this cancer treatment. And I'll jump in here. There's a new company. Well, it's not that new, but it's making splashes in the alternative health world. It's called LifeWave, which are these little uh, plastic patches, kind of like a Band-Aid, a clear Band-Aid. And they've got a bunch of patents for this technology. It's pretty impressive, actually. And they say that this patch, the LifeWave patches, there's a bunch of them, reflect your light back in, basically, kind of like a mirror. I'm not an expert on this, but this is my understanding. And yeah, this company is growing very, very quickly. They're selling lots and lots of these patches. I have been uh, prospected to be a distributor for them. I haven't really given a full answer yet, and honestly, I probably won't. I am kind of impressed by the science that they do have and the patents that they do have. And I'm also impressed by the enthusiasm of the distributors. You can tell people are very passionate about this product, the LifeWave patches. So I'm interested, I'm a little bit concerned about sounding too uh, hokey in promoting this type of stuff online. It really does sound too good to be true, and many of their pictures also look too good to be true, the before and after pictures. I'm not calling them liars, I'm just saying it's hard to believe. And I'm willing to believe it. But if it's hard to believe for me, when I've been exposed to so many different things in the alternative health business for 10 years-ish. I'm very open to all kinds of energy healing devices and all kinds of things, but 
if even I am having a hard time thinking about how I could promote this product, I'm assuming that most of our audience will also think that it's pretty far-fetched. But whatever helps people get better, in my opinion, is a good thing. So if you're thinking about trying the LifeWave products, I'd say go for it. You have nothing to lose. But Dr. Franson here, he's saying there's many ways to do this, to get more light into the cells. But the most well-known way is by eating fresh, organic foods. You can say that the sunshine accumulates in greens and in fruits. So if we take this in, it's like a present. The body can open it. Take the light from it, and it bioresonates with the light in the cell itself, and it strengthens it and makes it more vital. And because the cancer cell is so dark and can hold so little light, we really literally have to flood this cell with light. So the normal amount of food is not enough for cancer patients. This is reflected in the Gerson diet, where cancer patients can take up to 30 or 40 kilograms of organic food each week, which you cannot digest that. So you have to juice it, basically. You can't eat that much produce. When we juice with the normal juicers, all the light goes out of the food too fast and it destroys the light. So we need slow juicing to protect the light in the food. The second thing is we have to drink it within 15 minutes. Otherwise, when we wait for half an hour or longer, all the light has gone out of the food. The nutrients are still there, but we first need this amount of light. So this is one way to do it. Slow juicing. And he's also talking about the Eastern way, like yoga certain breathing techniques which they combine with their concentration to take in this prana, the life force or the chi energy directly from the breath into the body. An even more potent way to do this is by looking directly into the sun. You can say the sun emanates many very small light particles. When we look directly in the sun we can absorb with the retina directly these light particles in our nervous system. This is very powerful but not without danger or risk so we should not look straight into the sun during the day. But it's possible in the first half hour after sunrise and the first half hour with sunset. And Ty says, so you absorb it through your retina in your eye? And Franson says, right. So I thought that was interesting. Light in the cell. Don't know much about it, but I can believe it. Fresh organic vegetables, slow juiced. Sounds good to me. Next point I saved here is from a man named Burton Goldberg. He's talking about the Simpson Wood Report. And he says, Google it. Read the Simpson Wood Report. So I did Google it. And just on Wikipedia here, they're talking about how the Simpson Wood meeting has been uh, said to be part of a conspiracy to withhold or falsify vaccine safety information. And RFK Jr., Robert Kennedy, alleged that the government and private industry had colluded to thwart the Freedom of Information Act and withhold vaccine safety findings from the public. He said that the Simpsonwood data linked thimerosal and vaccines, mercury and vaccines, to the rise in autism, but that the lead researcher later reworked his data to bury the link between thimerosal and autism. And they're saying Kennedy's article contained numerous errors. Sure, but okay, so this is what we're getting at. The Simpsonwood report apparently alludes to the idea that big business and government is hiding vaccine safety data. Next point here, still Burton. Agriculture. The head of the FDA is on the board of the Shrine Company, the largest manufacturers of silver fillings, which have 50% mercury in it. So, conflict of interest, basically. The FDA is supposed to regulate medical devices and the safety of ingredients in, in medical devices, and drugs, and so on, but the head of the FDA, at least back here in 2015, is on the board of the Shrine Company, 
who makes mercury fillings. So, of course, the FDA is not going to rule against mercury fillings. And by the way, several people in this book blamed mercury fillings and root canals as being a big factor in the epidemic of cancer. Because root canals are said by many people to be the most toxic possible thing that we can have in our body. Because anaerobic bacteria live behind the dead tooth, basically. And we do have a mercury filling episode here on the podcast, so check that out. I'm not going to go deep into it, but it is mentioned frequently in this book. Alright, next point I saved here is from the late Nicholas Gonzalez. And his segment was really good here, but I saved the Steve McQueen story. And Steve McQueen was a famous actor and race car driver. And he got mesothelioma, which is an aggressive cancer in the tissues around the heart. But Dr. Gonzalez here, the Steve McQueen story has never been properly told. There are all kinds of biographies about Steve McQueen, and they mention Kelly, the crazy guy. And that's William Kelly. He was a controversial alternative dentist who developed a very aggressive new approach to cancer and other diseases. He was based in Dallas at the time, and Steve McQueen went under Kelly's care for the mesothelioma. But Dr. Gonzalez here has the actual records. He says nobody else has ever had this complete medical file, other than Dr. Kelly, who died. McQueen was kind of a reckless guy. Motorcycle racer, smoker, drinker, and lived a hard life as he is famous for. So cancer doesn't just come out of nowhere. You often hear about people like they just randomly got cancer, but a lot of times you look closer into their lifestyle and there's some very obvious factors that would contribute to an unhealthy body. He started getting sick in 1978 and 1979 and went to his fancy Los Angeles doctors and they kind of blew it off. You live too hard. You've got to cut down on the smoking. No one took him seriously. Finally, he was so debilitated, he went to his doctors and said, you've got to do something. Finally, the genius said, hey, let's do a chest x-ray. He had tumors in both lungs. They worked him up, and he had metastatic mesothelioma. And mesothelioma is associated with asbestos exposure. Well, he was a motorcycle fanatic, and in those days, the pipes of motorcycles were lined with asbestos, and he would work on his own motorcycles. He was a great mechanic. He was exposed to a huge amount of asbestos, and he ended up with mesothelioma. In those days, 35 years ago and today, mesothelioma is completely incurable once it spreads. It's very, very deadly, very aggressive. The only hope is to get it early and do surgery. Well, the doctors had completely missed the diagnosis for a year, so by the time it was diagnosed, it was metastatic. And I chime in here with fiberglass basically to me being the same thing, and even to a degree, sawdust, just from working with wood. Sawing, sanding... This stuff gets into the lungs, the lungs can form little mucus capsules around it and try and deal with it, try and get it out of the body like it's a pathogen. You could breathe in all kinds of particulate matter, but these are quite big particles. Like you could have smog in a city, right? You think about air quality. One of the things they're looking for is particulate matter count in parts per million, parts per billion. This is how you can measure smog, by particles in the atmosphere. And this is also a problem in people's homes, by the way, with dust and cat and dog hair, and lack of ventilation. So you got this stuff hanging out in the atmosphere, more particulate matter in the home than outside the home in many places. Definitely where I live, out in the country, there's way more particulate matter inside. Anyways, I bring this up because I actually grew up around smokers. Basically, everyone I knew smoked. My parents smoked. My grandparents smoked. I was in a working-class neighborhood. 
everybody seemed to smoke. To this day, I've only ever known one person who had lung cancer, and that was my grandfather, my dad's dad. He smoked, yes, he drank, I don't think excessively, but, you know, he was a real man's man. He did all that stuff, ate cheeseburgers, drank beer. And in the last part of his life, he really liked building boats, repairing boats, working on his boat. So that also meant a lot of fiberglass. He also built little train sets in his basement. Basement, for one, doesn't have good ventilation and has more particulate matter probably than the upstairs. You tend to air out your upstairs more often. There's more flow, things moving. Anyways, in both of these activities, he's breathing in sawdust and glues. And fiberglass is very aggressive working with fiberglass, by the way. I've been spray painting since I was a little kid. And I really don't have a problem painting without a mask. It does get to you. It does wear you out. You do feel the chemical exposure for sure, especially if you're indoors. But working with fiberglass, I could hardly tolerate it. Very, very tough to breathe. I would also put concrete in this category too, by the way. And this does have to do with cancer because I've got a whole stack of books about smoking tobacco. Some are with the regular theory that smoking causes cancer. And many of them are not. Many of them are questioning it. Especially with all the tests that have been done since the 1970s, especially, and even before that, in trying to give animals lung cancer with cigarette smoke. Very difficult to do. Even when you strap them down, like dogs, beagles, famous experiment, they strapped them into smoking chambers and made them smoke a ton, and they still couldn't give them lung cancer. Most people don't know how difficult it is experimentally to prove that smoking actually causes cancer. One reason is because cancers develop over time, so lots of other factors have to be considered. But another reason is because I think they're actually wrong about this. Smoking rates have fallen dramatically over the 20th century and even now. Smoking rates in many of the countries we live in here, Canada, US, Australia, they've plummeted. Smoking rates have plummeted. Everybody who's trying to be healthy doesn't smoke. We, we deal with tons of people online and they have diseases most of the time. That's why they're coming to us. Almost none of them smoke. These are very health-conscious people. So why do they still have problems? To me, it's because smoking is not the primary factor. Smoking rates are at like 10% and even less than that in Australia. And yet they still have chronic diseases, including cancers, including lung cancer. Because there's other things that I think clog the lungs up a lot faster and are way harder on the lungs. We heard earlier someone talking about how THC, marijuana is actually anti-cancer. So how could it be that smoking something, which is supposed to be so bad it causes all these diseases, including lung cancer, how could it be that that actually had a positive effect on lung cancer? Well, to me, it's because the particulates matter more than anything. And yeah, when you're mixing up concrete, and for me, I did floors for a while, a very short while. I was the guy that handled the, the, the jackhammer mixer thing over the bucket. When you're mixing in the, the concrete and the dyes and the water all together to make the kind of plastic concrete floor, epoxy kind of floor. For kitchens, that's what we were doing, for restaurants. And yeah, even with good masks, respirators, it was very, very, very tough on the lungs. It absolutely gets into the lungs, even with a mask. Same with fiberglass and even sanding. You do a lot of sanding, wood, metal, stone, anything, you're getting those particulate matter in the lungs, and I think that's a massive problem. So I bring this up because, yeah, my grandfather, the only person I actually know who had lung cancer, and this is being surrounded growing up with smokers, the only person I know who died of lung cancer, also had significant exposure to heavy, sticky particulates 
in the form of fiberglass and sawdust and probably some other stuff. I don't know. He was a craftsman. And he looked fine until he went into the hospital, by the way. Typical story here. He looked fine. He was an old man, but he was in pretty good shape, still working on his boat and stuff. Goes into the hospital, gets a diagnosis, starts on chemotherapy, and starts to look like he's dying very, very quickly. And this all happened very fast. We went into the hospital to see him. He was dead a few days later. From the chemotherapy. Lung cancer is aggressive and dangerous. But not that fast. Not within a couple of days, couple of weeks. Whatever it was. To me, there's no doubt that the chemotherapy killed him. Okay, back to Steve McQueen. They completely missed the diagnosis. Then the geniuses decided to give him immunotherapy. There's never been a study in the history of the world showing immunotherapy has any effect on mesothelioma. Talk about quackery. But they gave it to him. It didn't work, so then they decided to give him radiation. Maybe they gave him the radiation first. I have to pull out all my notes. There's never been a study in the history of the world showing radiation works with mesothelioma. Guess what? It didn't work. So he ends up with stage 4 advanced cancer, and weeks from death, he goes to see Dr. Kelly. Kelly made one fatal mistake in treating Steve McQueen. He took him on as a patient. He was too advanced, and he was a reckless guy. He was still smoking, still drinking, but he pleaded, and Kelly was a very compassionate guy. He said, I will treat you, but you are too weak. You can't do this at home the way most of my patients do. There was a hospital in Mexico at the time that was administering parts of Kelly's therapy. He said, go down to that hospital in Mexico, and I'll kind of direct them. And he did. McQueen wasn't 100% compliant. He still had the Haagen-Dazs ice cream and the cigarettes smuggled in from his friends, but he did enough of the treatment that he started getting better. Then one of the doctors in Mexico gets the brilliant idea, let's open him up, because they think that the tumor, he had a tumor in his abdomen as well as his chest, let's take it out. We think it's a dead tumor. They do the surgery, and the next day he dies of a pulmonary embolism, which is a blood clot in the lungs. He did not die of mesothelioma, and, in fact, the tumor was a dead tumor. Kelly used to have it in his office in formaldehyde, a dead tumor that had shrunk down from a huge tumor down to nothing. It was dead. He didn't die from the way the media reports read, which I have. It's like Kelly took a gun and shot McQueen, his crazy quack doctor. So the true story has never been told here. In none of the media reports did they mention the fact that the diagnosis had been missed and the conventional doctors had done everything they could do and even today in 2014, metastatic mesothelioma is universally 100% incurable by standard therapy. Now, we have patients who have done beautifully, but Kelly got blamed for that. Skipping forward, still in Gonzales, we have learned that often the difference between success and failure is the attitude of the patient. Patients who are at peace with their situation, who have faith in the practitioner, always do the best. I agree with that. I always tell patients, when you don't trust your practitioner, whether it is me or Joe Schmo down the street at Sloan Kettering, leave. Find someone you believe in, because your lack of belief, your lack of faith, and your lack of trust will undermine your treatment. Whatever it is, chemo, radiation, or voodoo. Yeah, powerful stuff there. You've got to believe. Even if it's traditional, conventional treatment, you got to believe that it's going to work or it's probably not going to work. If you believe it's going to kill you, it probably will kill you. If you believe that you can go home, you probably will go home. Skipping forward, Kelly's program had three basic components. Individualized diet, individualized supplement programs, which for cancer patients is large doses of pancreatic enzymes and detoxification routines like the coffee enemas couple comments. Yes, pancreatic enzymes, high doses of high protease enzymes 
I have added that to my uh, recommendation list for cancer people based on the idea that that can actually dissolve the protein coat, which is the tumor, right? We read earlier, your body takes cancer and puts it into a tumor for safekeeping to protect it from spreading around the body. This is the theory. Well, that tumor is coated with a protein membrane, basically, and the protease enzymes, when they're not being used for digestion, because if you take them right before eating food, your body's going to use those enzymes to digest the food. You take them away from food in high doses, they can dissolve the tumor, allowing your body to actually get in and deal with it, right? The tumor, they, they sealed it off so it can't spread, but at the same time, your body can't deal with it. So if, theoretically, if you use these high protease enzymes in the combination with lots of supportive nutrients, of course, and they're talking about detoxification routines as well, I agree, liver flushes and so on, that your body could potentially be strong enough to defeat the cancer. And second comment on the coffee enemas. It was actually because of this book that I started to look at coffee enemas less dismissively, because I've always dismissed them in the past. I didn't understand. I could have looked this up, honestly, I'm admitting I don't have time to look up every single thing, and coffee enemas is one of those things that I've heard so many times I should have looked it up and and figured out what's different about coffee than a regular enema, because when people ask if they should do enemas, my general response is that an enema is fine, but it really just cleans out the rectum, which is the end cavity of the intestine. You need to go past the rectum into the colon if you actually want to clean out, you know, significant toxins and waste, old sludge, old plaque that's in there. And for that, you need a trained hydrotherapist. You need a professional to do that because it can be dangerous going up here. Mentioned earlier, a colonoscopy can kill you. It absolutely can. As soon as you go past the the rectum, even in the rectum itself, there's the possibility of puncturing the side of it and causing a big problem. You absolutely get a a killer infection that could kill you. So you got to be very careful when you go up into the colon. And that's why you need a real professional hydrotherapist to do that. And I'm pretty sure I saved the point here on uh, coffee enemas, but they're saying that the coffee enemas actually stimulate the liver to release toxins, like a liver flush. It forces the liver to flush. I'm not 100% sure about that, but many people mention it here. Many people uh, mention coffee enemas as part of their routine here because this book not only has practitioners, it also has patients, right? Cancer conquerors, they call them. And many of those people used coffee enemas. Just saying, I'm not as dismissive about those as I used to be, and you could absolutely try them if you're in a serious situation. Next point. Large doses of nutritional supplements. Vitamins, minerals, trace elements, and glandular extracts from animals like liver, thymus, lungs, pancreas, and heart. Good idea. Great idea. These glandular products are made for us in New Zealand. We don't believe the vitamins and minerals, trace elements, and glandular products are going to cure or reverse cancer. Why not? What they do provide is nutritional support. Okay, that's the legal way to frame this anyways. We're not treating a disease. We're not dealing with a problem. If you're giving somebody a recommendation for nutrition, you are not treating their diabetes or their Alzheimer's or their cancer. You are supporting the body. That's what it does. It supports your organs supports your body's ability to use enzymes and repair tissues. That's what nutrition does. If anything is doing any curing, then it's your actual body doing the curing. But it needs the raw materials to do its magic. The human body is magic. It can heal from incredible things. It built itself all by itself. Didn't need any drugs or genetic modification. It just knows what to do, but it needs the raw materials to do it. 
So technically the nutrients aren't doing the curing, the body is. And all that is important. I know it sounds kind of like the same thing, but it's very important how we talk about nutrients. You have to speak legally. I go more into this in my book, Fake Diseases, of course. Once again, you can see all my books and the free audiobook versions on my website, notusbooks.org. But you do have to understand this legal concept if you're trying to actually help people. And even for you as a patient, you know, you're asking your nutrition advisor, hey, will this cure me? You need to understand that you framed the question illegally, that they can't even legally answer that with a simple yes or no. You need to understand that most diseases, including cancer, and especially cancer, is a process. It's not a thing that you have, not a thing that you possess. It's not a noun. It's a verb. It's an action. Your body's going one direction. You can change that. You can change your habits. The things that got you in the bad direction, you can change them and turn them around and go in the other direction. It's a process. You don't have diabetes in your body. Your body's not responding to the insulin that it's producing. Why? It needs nutrients for the membrane of your cell to recognize insulin and other things involved. It's a nutrient deficiency. You can correct that, and now you can recognize insulin and use it. At no point were you cured because you didn't have something to begin with. Again, the language is kind of stupid here, but this definitely matters legally. You can't be going out there treating people and curing people and using those words. Continuing on, now we are doing two things. We are trying to attack the cancer directly, but we're also trying to rebuild a ravaged body. A lot of the patients who came to Kelly and a lot of the patients that we see not only have advanced cancer, which just wrecks the body, But they've also been treated with aggressive chemo, radiation, and all kinds of combinations that also ravage the body. We try to rebuild the body and also attack the cancer. You can attack the cancer better if you rebuild the body. So the vitamins, minerals, trace elements, and glandular products help restore the normal equilibrium and homeostasis of the body, and even then supplement programs are very individualized. And I agree, we like to individualize as well. We don't just give random protocols out. Hey, here's the cancer protocol. We don't do that. We speak with people. That's why I said if you want our advice, you go to the contact page. Link in the description, wallexwarriors.ca. You fill out the questionnaire and then you begin a conversation and a relationship with a coach who will help you through it with an individualized program. Even though much of it is copy and paste, the same basic food rules do apply to everyone, but it's still up to you to find what you do best on. You know, we say something like the 90 essential nutrients. Yeah, everybody needs their baseline dose, but we don't have one pill or one product that everyone takes for their baseline. There's several different ways to add that up with at least two or three different products. You might not do that well on one. One product might give you diarrhea. You might hate the taste of another product. And out of hundreds of different possible combinations you find four or five products that you really love and that are doing good in your body you're feeling the effects that's what we mean by individualized and i agree it would be absolutely criminal to standardize a cancer treatment in my opinion and i know i'm adding in quite a few tangents here into this podcast and it is a long episode but even though this isn't going to be a definitive accounts of everything you should know about cancer, I feel that I should add some more stuff in here. And I'm Canadian, and I talk with Canadians, obviously, and many of them who have undergone chemotherapy or other, you know, major disease treatments in Canada, 
One of the things they complain about, one of the reasons why a lot of Canadians go to America or go to Mexico or Thailand for different medical treatment, even though they can get it in Canada basically for free in most cases, they leave because one of their complaints is that it feels too standardized. Since they're paid by the government and they can't just, you know, bill whatever they want to the insurance company in a private practice, Canadian doctors, I'm told, operate a little bit more as if it's a conveyor belt. Right? You go in with this type of breast cancer, oh, this is what we do for breast cancer. It's not individualized as one of the major complaints by people who have gone to regular treatment here in Canada. And I agree, if there's no incentive for the doctor to do more with one patient than the next, you know, spend more time with you, figuring out your diet or your, even your drug program or whatever, they don't ask extra questions because there's no incentive to, that's not good. In the nutrition business, we are incentivized to spend basically as much time as we need. Some people don't take us up on that. They do fine on the program. You know, they teach themselves. We've got plenty of material out there. But some people need their hands held, and it's worth it to us because the better results they get, the more likely they're going to be a lifelong customer and bring in other people. They're going to talk about it with their friends and family. People are going to notice that they're doing better. They're going to notice that they've lost weight or whatever. We depend on this repeat business and referrals, basically. But the regular medical establishment doesn't, especially in Canada. It just doesn't matter whether you come to the doctor's office or not. In the case of hospitals and cancer treatment places in Canada, if nobody shows up at all, the doctors are still getting paid. They just don't operate under regular business incentives. So for us in, in a regular business here that insurance doesn't pay for, we have to do as much as we can for the customer to get them as healthy as possible so that we can have a lifelong customer. And if they die in six months, we don't make much money. We want them to live for 60 years. I'm putting it in the most selfish terms possible just to see the incentives laid out clearly here. I do want to go above and beyond and help people completely turn their health around because that's going to be the best customer and they're going to bring me more customers, frankly. But if your doctor is not incentivized to spend more time with you or individualize your program, you're going to have standardized results, which are apparently not very good. For most cancers, their success rates or their track rates are just terrible. Five-year survivability, 10-year survivability, terrible. And to me, that's because they don't spend enough time individualizing the program. And, of course, they don't know about all this alternative stuff. They don't know about nutrition and whatever. They can't even legally, in many cases, they can't prescribe you vegetables or something. Like, they could talk to you about it in private conversation. It's still up to you to do it. There's just no incentive for them to do it. They're already busy and tired and whatever. Just saying, you want an individualized treatment. Moving forward. Beard, Dr. John Beard, took an animal model, which they had at the time for cancer, and used his enzymes, the first study of enzymes in history, and he got 100% regression of cancer in the animals that he treated, whereas the control group died very quickly. He was not a physician, he was a scientist, so he was not able to treat patients directly, but physicians working under him began using enzymes. The first case was in 1905. This is the enzyme treatment for cancer, by the way. It's actually a book in 1911 by John Beard. This is not new at all. I'll throw in here that I've gotten incredible results by using high doses of enzymes over the last two, three years. Incredible results, way beyond expectations. I'm talking about all problems here. Any problem that you could name from joint pain to migraines, metabolic problems, hormone problems, 
And the cancer cases that we have have been doing quite well, by the way. We don't have too many cancer patients at any given time. Usually it's about like three to eight. Right now I think we have four. And all of them are, are doing fine. There's no emergencies right now. One of them's just about a miracle, actually. Just like uh, we were talking about Steve McQueen there, where the doctor gets him at the very end. We had a similar case recently with stomach cancer, which is very serious. We're talking stage four stomach cancer. Like, they're on their deathbed. They're planning their funeral. And we got them on about half of the program because we didn't have full control over the feeding tube. So there's still some junk going into the feeding tube. But we had this woman uh, basically turned around. I should check in on her. But the last I heard, the, the son was absolutely amazed. His mom is no longer planning her death, basically. She's on the up and up, and that's great. But all but one of our uh, cancer people right now have them on the high protease enzymes and other enzyme products as well. So in 1905, this case of head and neck cancer, the tumor completely regressed, and it was published in conventional medical literature. I've collected dozens of articles in peer-reviewed conventional literature from the period of 1905 to 1911, and physicians under Beard's guidance treated advanced cancer, colon cancer, rectal cancer, breast cancer, endometrial cancer, lung cancer, successfully with the enzymes. And he wrote that book in 1911, The Enzyme Treatment of Cancer, where he actually photographed sequential photographs of patients with head and neck cancer where tumors actually disappeared and the skin healed normally 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago. The work then, as it is today, is still considered too controversial. And this is more than I saved, but I figure I should read on here. There's another footnote which we don't often talk about in my lectures. At the same time Beard was showing that enzymes could reverse cancer, Madame Curie, she was investigating radiation. X-rays had been discovered in 1895, and by 1900, they were used diagnostically. They were miraculous. You could do an X-ray and see the inside of the chest and see the lungs. By 1905, Madame Curie was saying that radiation would be a simple, easy, and non-toxic way of treating all cancer. She had two Nobel Prizes already. One of the few people, Linus Pauling also has two, few people that ever had one, let alone two, and she was well-loved by the media. She was the first great media star. She knew how to use the media. She knew how to call press conferences, and she announced radiation as the cure of cancer to the media. Beard was this nerdy, ivory tower scientist who thought the media was a bunch of morons and had no use for them. No use for his critics. And he wasn't the most diplomatic person. Whereas Madame Curie knew how to nurture the media. All over the world, Madame Curie, the greatly beloved. She was the first woman to get a PhD in theoretical physics from the University of Paris. She is extraordinary in history. Movies have been made about her. The press loved her. Who cared about Dr. Beard and pancreatic enzymes? Well, nobody, apparently. So his book went unheeded. Radiation came into the forefront of cancer treatment. Of course, Madame Curie was completely wrong on all counts. It isn't non-toxic, and in fact, she herself died as a result of radiation exposure. She died of aplastic anemia caused by radiation. Most tumors that regressed came back very quickly, more deadly, and only a few cancers actually responded to it. So radiation was not the simple, easy, non-toxic way of treating all cancer. She was wrong. By that point, by the time scientists realized it, hundreds of scientists involved in radiation had died because of her cavalier exposure to radiation. It is invisible. The rays are invisible. By that point, Beard died in 1924. He died in obscurity. His book forgotten. Kelly revived that. Kelly himself had cancer and was trying to fight his own battle. He was an orthodontist by training. 
And uh, once again, I didn't save this, but I'm continuing on with the story here, skipping forward. Kelly went through the literature and realized the only thing he could do was change his diet. And then he learned about Beard's work from, at that point, 60 years earlier, and added in enzymes and got well from pancreatic cancer. Very aggressive, very scary cancer. And Gonzalez says a lot of very interesting stuff here. One of my favorite segments in this book, but I'm skipping forward. In fact, chemotherapy, though it doesn't work for most cancers, does work for some, like Hodgkin's and certain leukemias. In a Hodgkin's patient, if you break a tumor down too fast with chemo, you kill the patient from the dead tumor. They call it tumor lysis, and it is recognized in the textbooks and conventional textbooks talk about it. Well, Kelly recognized that back in 1963 when he was trying to get over his own cancer. He started going into the literature as he always did. And this is where he found coffee enemas. He was trying to find some technique that would help his liver and kidneys work better because they're the main detoxification organs or environmental chemicals and metabolic waste and dead cancer get processed and neutralized and prepare for excretion. And in the Merck manual back then, there are coffee enemas. And the interesting thing, or the sad thing, or the ironic thing, Kelly was brutalized in the media for his use of coffee enemas. And we get attacked about it today too. But they come right out of the conventional medical literature. He didn't learn about it from alien space beings who projected it into his brain from some mystic psychic experience. He didn't learn about it through some alternative throwaway journal. He learned about it from conventional medical textbooks. The Merck Manual is a compendium of conventional therapies. They were in the Merck Manual, right up until the 1970s. And he had files on coffee enemas. Dozens of studies from the 20s and 30s and 40s at major institutions where they used coffee enemas for a variety of things. Arthritis, mental illness. I have a study from the New England Journal of Medicine, a preeminent medical journal of the U.S., in 1932, from Harvard Medical School research, psychiatrists successfully treated what we call today bipolar illness, and in those days they called it manic depressive, with enemas. Their hypothesis was that there were toxins through the intestinal tract that were polluting the mind, and that is what is causing the mental illness. They put these people on enemas and colonics, and they got well, and they got them off medication and out of the hospital. I had a study from Uruguay. Just because it is Uruguay doesn't mean there weren't serious scientists. People downplay anything that is not from Boston. It was a good study. They had patients with septic shock, and in those days, septic shock occurred because of gram-negative bacteria producing polysaccharide, a kind of carbohydrate that is toxic to you, and people die from that. The death rate today is still a rate of 40% or 50% with septic shock, and in those days, it was 90%. People in Uruguay in the intensive care unit had learned about coffee enemas from the conventional medical world, and started treating patients with coffee enemas and had great success and published it in a peer-reviewed journal. We have a translation. Almost 90% reversal of septic shock that should have changed the way hospitals treat septic shock all over the world was ignored because it was folksy and it wasn't high-tech, even then in 1941-1942. Skipping forward. When you drink coffee, it tends to suppress the liver. When you take coffee as an enema, rectally, the caffeine stimulates a bunch of nerves in the lower colon called the sacral parasympathetic nerves. When they are turned on by caffeine, they feed back to the liver through a reflex arc and within seconds causes the liver to release all the toxins. Nothing helps the liver clean out faster and more efficiently or more effectively than coffee enemas. For cancer patients, when you're breaking down a tumor with the enzyme and you get all this tumor debris, that can be deadly and life-threatening. It gets the liver to work better, so it processes tumor debris very effectively, and then you just poop them out with the enemas. Interestingly enough, when you drink the coffee, 
It is really toxic to a cancer patient. But if you take it rectally, it opens up the liver so the liver dumps into the small intestine and you get rid of all the dead tumor waste effectively. I have patients that, when they are breaking down tumor, they have a reaction to the tumor and get fevers of 103 and 104. Do an enema, and literally within 20 minutes of the enema, the fever is down to normal. I see this routinely. They will feel like they are dying, and we will do an enema and they will feel better. Gersey reported this. He had his own alternative therapy in the 40s and 50s. He died in 1959, but he wrote a book of 50 cases in 1959 discussing his approach to cancer and his success. And he used coffee enemas for the same reason. He found that if the program worked too quickly, patients would die from the dead tumor waste. So he incorporated coffee enemas back in the 1940s and 50s. Didn't save more from Gonzalez. Next point I saved is from a Dr. Gorder. And it's just saying, over the last 60 years, good data on why people die in the United States. And it's very similar in Europe. And you see that Western medicine, academic medicine, has made big progress, great progress, in treating heart attacks. So less people die of heart attack or strokes. But there's no difference in cancer. The same amount of people die. America's official statistics, the same amount of people die now from cancer as in 1950. So it should really be bothersome that all the trillions of dollars which went into cancer treatment and research didn't bring anything. And that must really put people to think, and also public health officials, that there is something wrong with what we do and we should really rethink how to treat. So then he's talking about early detection earlier and Ty says, what are some good early detection techniques? Well, of course, a couple of things. First thing is to see your core body temperature. Many patients and also family members who turned out to be at risk they had a lower body temperature. So we advise people, also when they come in and are treated, they always have too low a body temperature, and they measure it in the morning, and then over the month we treat them. We see that the temperature increases to what is normal for a healthy person. P.S. I think he's talking about the Barnes Basal Temperature Test, which is usually uh, used, or I use it at least, to determine if someone has a low thyroid. Because they could have any other problem in the book, and often they'll have many different problems, many different symptoms. And if I'm trying to get to the root of it, and they're not responding to our normal program, or maybe even up front, sometimes I just ask them, it looks like, to me, they have a thyroid problem, so I'll ask them to do the Barnes Basal Temperature Test. It's just put in a thermometer in your armpit. When you first wake up, you stay in bed, keep it there for 10 minutes, and you do that five days in a row. And if it's consistently lower than 97.8 Fahrenheit, then that indicates low thyroid. It's not a surefire proof, but it indicates. And so Dr. Gorder here is saying that this low body temperature is actually an indication of poor health in general. And I can concur here that basically anyone who is what I would call a tough case, meaning somebody who doesn't respond to our normal advice, you know, get off the bad foods, get on the 90th century nutrients. Of course, the program's individualized to them. But if they're not getting expected results, I call them a tough case. And almost all of those people have a low core temperature here, a low Barnes basal temperature test. And he's saying if you, if you have a proper temperature, then you can't have cancer, or it is extremely rare. And lots of people don't notice this because they have had it for life. They've kind of always been cold. So now you know if you're running cold. Maybe you want to do something about that. I will tell you that being properly nourished, getting the thyroid functioning optimally with proper nutrients, and some foods that you could eat too. They're talking about organs here. I would highly, highly agree consuming organs, whether a desiccated granular product, 
or eating the organs themselves, especially liver, because all your organs are made of the same things, basically. So eating any organ should support your organs in, in general and glands. But to me, I specifically like the liver because it has such high doses of vitamin A, and vitamin A is also key in all of the glands, all of the organs. So if the thyroid is under-functioning or over-functioning or something, we give kind of high doses, actually. It's a, a little bit more that we need to do for someone with a thyroid problem than arthritis or something like that. But when we do that and the core temperature comes up, lots of symptoms tend to disappear. Again, could be minor things, could be major things. Usually it is a dozen different symptoms or more if they have a low body temperature. Can be fixed. Not the easiest thing in the world, but it's not that difficult either. Quite good success rates on my end. Okay, next point I saved is from a person named Edward. He's talking about B17, or latrile, or amygdalin. Don't know why it goes by three different names. B17 comes up a lot in this book. And there's a component of cyanide in there. This is what he's explaining. And that cyanide word scares people. But there's also a cyanide compound in B12, cyanocobalamin, for cyanide and cobalamin for cobalt. There's also methylcobalamin, but he's just making a point that just because it says cyanide doesn't mean that it's dangerous. And the apricot seeds, the source of the, the B17, <clears throat> yes, technically they contain some cyanide, but that doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. So the point that I actually saved here, the thing that releases the cyanide and the benzaldehyde, which is also toxic, by the way, is an enzyme called beta-glucosidase. Beta-glucosidase. It's an enzyme. Where is that found? In cancer cells and only in cancer cells. That's interesting. So the thing that releases the cyanide and the other toxic compound, the benzaldehyde, is an enzyme beta-glucosidase which is only in cancer cells. So the cancer cell literally releases the poison from the latrile or the amygdalin, which then acts on the cancer itself. That's interesting. Skipping forward, still in Edward, Ty is asking him about the California report of 1953, and Edward responds, it's a clear example of the degree to which, I guess there's no other word, but fraud. The degree to which fraud, deliberate conscious fraud, can be injected into what we would normally think is a scientific process. Early in the days of the development of late trial, there were stories circulating of people who were getting well. They were being treated and coming back from the edge of the grave and so forth. So naturally the pharmaceutical industry wanted to put an end to this. And so they set up a deal where they wanted to have it tested. The idea is okay. None of this discussion about people getting saved, none of these little stories. Let's do a scientific test. Not everybody was in favor of that, except they insisted that only those who were opponents of late trial do the tests and nobody else could do the tests, you see. It had to be the oncologists and the people in the staff of the pharmaceutical industry and so forth. The people who believed in it couldn't study it because they, uh, they would fudge the results, I guess. Well, anyway, to make a long story short, and it is a long story, the California branch of the AMA, the American Medical Association, the California Medical Association was given the task of doing a test on late trial, and the people who were in charge of this were all in the cancer industry. And most of the members of the panel were radiologists, interestingly enough. So anyway, they all had some kind of a vested interest in not finding something that would interfere with their businesses, you see. So there was a sort of built-in bias. Anyway, they did this very fine scientific study using mice and so forth. They spent a lot of money. They produced the report. 
and they reported that there was no evidence whatsoever that late trial had any effect in the control of cancer. So that was all anybody needed to hear. There was something done by the California Medical Association and two fine upstanding doctors. Well, these doctors, just to give you an idea of how fine and scientifically astute they were, these were the guys, both of them said that there was no connection at all between cigarette smoking and lung cancer. That was before they got involved in this report. They had already been bought and paid for by the tobacco industry, of course. In fact, one of them, I think, even made the famous quote, a pack a day keeps cancer away. Both these doctors were heavy smokers. So anyway, that gives you a little idea of the scientific expertise of these guys. Well, as far as most doctors are concerned, if they see a report from the California Medical Association and it's accepted by teaching institutions, there's no question that, that the science right there is authentic. It's the gospel truth. But nobody ever went back to look at it. I've got a copy of the full report, the big thick report. When you go back and read the actual pages of the report, the summary was a lie. It was an absolute lie. There was plenty of evidence in the laboratory work that it did retard the growth of cancer, in spite of the fact that there was a question about the quality of the late trial they were using. In fact, it was pretty obvious that they did not have good quality late trial. It was also obvious that they were using lower dosage than were being used in the clinics. And in spite of those two handicaps, the laboratory results were reporting case after case after case where these mice were recovering from cancer, right in the body of the report. And yet the summary was there was absolutely no evidence that, you know, etc., etc. This was the sort of flagship of what had been repeated many times since then. People should realize that it's not just ineptitude or bias in the cancer industry, bias against natural therapy, but also deliberate fraud. Lots of fraud in the medical science field, I promise that. Next quote, still from Edward here. If your diet is low in meat protein, and if your pancreas is normally functioning okay, you should have plenty of digestive enzymes to take care of the meat, and there still be plenty in the bloodstream. Now, when these digestive enzymes come to the cancer cell, they say, ah, protein, meat, and they will actually digest away that coating. This is what I was saying earlier, protease enzymes. Now, the underlying cancer cell is exposed, and it has a positive electrostatic charge. Now, here comes the white blood cells, and they do literally attack the cancer cell once it's been stripped of its electrical protection. So all of the physicians who I've ever met that are following this alternative therapy, this concept, one of the things that they focus on is making sure that the patient changes the diet to either eliminate meat altogether or make sure it's very, very low. A lot of people don't understand that. They think, well, what is it? Just some kind of vegetarian nut? We have to eat vegetables too and along with it. And he's just saying here, you definitely want to make sure that whatever your pancreas is producing in the way of these digestive enzymes is completely available to do the job. So... I believe he's saying that if you eat too much meat, then your body has to divert too many nutrients to deal with that, too many enzymes specifically to deal with that, and there's not enough left over to dissolve tumors and other things in the body. Enzymes are very, very interesting because especially the ones that we think of as digestive enzymes, as I mentioned earlier, if they're not being used for digestion, then they're going to be doing something else in the body. Enzymes do the work in the body. They're proteins that do work. And we need nutrients vitamins and minerals to be cofactors so the enzymes can work, but ultimately it is the enzyme that's doing the work. It's not the zinc or the magnesium that's doing the work. It's the zinc and the magnesium activating uh, hundreds of different enzyme processes so they can do the work. So yeah, many people in this book talk about uh, the power of enzymes, and I'm definitely coming to understand that at this point in my career, and you should as well. Any disease process, I would say that everybody should be actually on enzymes. I used to think that 
it was a really good idea to take them when we were first starting a program. Now I believe we should be on it all the time because most of us are cooking most of our food. We're eating mostly cooked food most of the time. Cooked food has no enzymes in it. Enzymes are destroyed at very low temperatures. Enzymes are expired over long transport distances by early picking and artificial aging. Many different forms of processing strip out all the enzymes, or most of them. So we're eating food that doesn't have enzymes in it. Therefore, we're relying on the enzymes that are in our body, that our body produces in the pancreas and other places. But we're overburdening our own body. If we were eating raw foods, and I'm not saying that we should have an all-raw food diet. I'll do a different episode purely on enzymes and the raw food uh, debate in the future, so stay tuned for that. But I do believe that the enzyme part of the raw food theory is absolutely correct. We are eating dead food. We need enzymes to actually digest that food. And if we rely on our own body to produce all of the enzymes we need for literally everything in the body, and we're eating so much food in general, that's a huge problem too. We're eating so much food. And so much meat, muscle meat, gone into it in the past, uh, especially in the episode uh, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. I highly recommend that episode where we talk about primitive diets and the fact that no culture ever prioritized the muscle. We think of meat, we, it's muscle. It's what we call meat. Meanwhile, all the primitive cultures, all the longest lived cultures prioritize the organs. To me, I would say the organs, the connective tissue, and the bones are all way more important than the muscle. And I guess I agree with uh, what that person was saying there, that if you eat tons of meat, then yeah, you need tons of enzymes to digest that, and now you're basically burdening your pancreas, using up its resources to digest your meat instead of doing something else in the body. I agree with that, but also, meat is high in phosphorus. It's higher in phosphorus than calcium. It has a poor calcium to phosphorus ratio. We're supposed to have two times as much calcium as phosphorus, or 2.1 to 1. That's the ratio. But many of the foods we eat, including meat, including organs too, not saying we should live on organs, they're very high in phosphorus, and things like corn and sugar and colas, and actually all animal products, all cheeses and milk and all that stuff, it's higher in phosphorus than it is in calcium. Therefore, it depletes our body of calcium. Calcium is the primary alkalizing nutrient. But if we're consuming high phosphorus foods without balance, without supplementation, our body will pull calcium from bones and teeth in order to keep it in the blood. And the problem here with cancer, how it comes in, is because calcium is the primary alkalizing nutrient. I've mentioned that earlier. We need all the water-soluble nutrients to be hydrated, but we also need calcium specifically to be alkaline. So a high meat diet, this is the point. Yes, it is correlated with cancer. I do agree. We eat too much meat, too much muscle meat. Not enough organs, not enough vegetables, not enough spices and herbs and, and other, you know, medicinal type foods. Too much meat, quantities are too big. On a daily basis is unheard of in primitive cultures, at least the healthy ones. Once a week is more realistic for actual muscle meat. Fish could be every day, that's a different story. But anyways, yeah, lack of enzymes, important and interesting point. All right, and even though we're not done the book here, I'm going to call this a part one. I know I'm not going to be able to upload a massive episode to the podcast, so both parts will post at the same time. So go check out part two, where we will finish off this book. And remember, you can find everything that I do on my website, notusbooks.org. All the books that I've written and helped publish, and the free audiobook versions of all my books... 
as well as hundreds of book reviews. Most of them are about health. And, of course, an archive of this podcast. It's all on my website, notusbooks.org. And you can download the archive episodes for free. And at the very end, there's actually a special treat there for you. So if you are listening on the archive right now, stick around after I sign out. For everybody else, I appreciate you. Stay healthy, my friends. Until next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.